Ahoy, everybody. This is Chris. Uh, welcome to episode 14 of X-Lapsed. Today, we're going to be discussing the Marauders. Now, I've said it before that uh, last fall when I read my, you know, the three <laughs> Dawn of X books that I actually managed to read, uh, Marauders number one was uh, my favorite of the three. Uh, that was X-Men, Marauders, and Excalibur. And Marauders was, uh, I don't want to say far and away my favorite, but... Uh, it was kind of a dark horse, you know, I was not expecting to dig it, and I actually came away from it really, really enjoying it. Uh, let's hop right on into the issue. This is Marauders number 1, December 2019, cover date. Story's called I'm on a Boat, written by Jerry Duggan, art by Matteo Lali, colors by Federico Blee, uh, letters by VCs Corey Petit, design Tom Muller, the head of X is Jonathan Hickman. Edits, Chris Robinson joins White and Sabolsky, and this was a $5 book, $4.99 USD. On sale October 23rd, 2019. Now we open sometime back in the not-so-long ago in Central Park. Storm and Nightcrawler are ushering some mutants, including Kitty Pride, through a gateway home to Krakoa. Now I know that the X-Men had set up shop in Central Park uh, during... One of the volumes I sat out. Uh, so maybe this is wrapping up that loose end. And I'm going to assume that this scene, just just this scene, is probably happening at some point during the House of X, Powers of X event, uh, since it is just a little while ago. Um, I'm trying to think of when Central Park was established. It might have been... Whatever the, whatever the name of the, of the uh, like one shot that led into the Blue and Gold book... Was it X-Men Prime, or was it just X-Men Gold Zero? It was one of those. Um, I think that's where they set up the Central Park uh, digs there. But uh, anyway, Kitty goes to step through, and, well, Krakoa don't play that. She splats right on into the door. Kitty cannot access the gateway. Now, with a bloody and perhaps broken nose, Kitty stands back and starts cursing, while Aurora and Kurt look pretty shocked at the entire scene. So... Let's meet our marauding cast before we go any further here. We've got Kitty Pride, Lockheed, Storm, Nightcrawler, Iceman, Wolverine, Emma Frost, Bishop, and Pyro. After this, we get a two-page spread of creds, and uh, the most interesting part of this is seeing that Mr. Hickman is now the head of X. Uh, it's nice to have a uh, guiding force for this uh, family of books, especially when that guiding force's name doesn't rhyme with Crendus. Um, from here, an info page. It's a log written by Kitty or Kate Pride. I, I don't think I'll ever be able to call her Kate. Um, covering a six-day voyage on a borrowed slash stolen boat. You know she's got to get to Krakoa somehow, right? Day one, she stole a boat in San Diego, and she's pretty apologetic about it. She's you know hoping that the real owner will eventually get their boat back. On day two, she proclaims that she's the captain now, which uh, reminds me of a show on Sirius Yacht Rock Radio where they bring in a guest DJ who will often proclaim that they are the captain now. Day three, she's dipping into Logan's stash of booze. 
Day four, Lockheed's having the time of his life and is eating a lot of sea critters. Day five, Kitty wonders a bit about why Krakoa has denied her, and she worries about being useless and having to rely on others for transport. Day six, Kitty comes around to the idea that keeping a log is dumb and a waste of time. She start, she's sorry that she stole the boat, but she's no longer all that interested in seeing it return to its rightful owner. Now, back to comics. Lockheed deposits a seagull's wing into Kitty's hands, which uh, is kind of treated like when your cat might leave like a dead mouse or a dead bird at your uh, doorstep. You know, you, you tell yourself it's a gift, and then you just thank the cat for being a, you know, a good boy or a good girl. All the while, you're trying to think of like that one thing in your house that you'd be okay throwing out because you're going to use it to try and scoop up you know, the little dead thing. Kitty then realizes, hey, if there are seagulls here, that means we're probably getting close to making landfall. And no sooner does she realize this than we see her little boat arrive. And uh, she asks Krakoa what she might have done to take it off. Kitty steps onto the beach, which is full of Krakoan gateways. She's greeted by a youngster who uh, asks if she's the girl who can't use the gates, to which she is rather displeased. Then Iceman shows up. Before they can chat, however, Logan busts into the scene, wanting to know if Kitty brought the stuff. He rushes into the drink and swims out to the dinghy to procure a bunch of booze. So, can alcohol not travel via Krakoan Gateway? Is is that a, a thing that, uh, is that like a, a rule we didn't know yet? Or, or maybe it's a rule we're supposed to know. Is Krakoa a dry county? Or, or mutant island, a dry mutant island thing? I don't know. Now, Kitty, upon seeing Wolverine still alive after being burninated during the Mother Mold mission, is both relieved and shocked that the five were able to resurrect him. So, I'm guessing this is probably toward the tail end of House of X, Powers of X, or maybe this part is at the end of is, you know, on the other side, you know, our side now. From here, an info page, and it's Logan's shopping list. He wants ribs, he wants Canadian club whiskey, he wants booze, he wants suds, he wants Cubano sandwiches, he wants some Dapper Dude pomade, and he wants some coffee. It's a cute bit, but a whole page on this? It's not that cute. Uh, Iceman and Kitty, they chat for a bit, mostly about whether or not Kitty's got a home here. Bobby tells her, you know, she's got to plant a flower or something. Then, Bobby, upon noticing that there's zero traffic coming from one of the gateways, decides to head on in to see if there's anything amiss on the other side. Kitty, now alone, is psychically or telepathically contacted by Emma Frost. And they have a meeting of sorts in the uh, back of Emma's car. And the first question from Ms. Frost is why Kitty hasn't told the gang to call her Kate. Kitty says, despite all the changes the X-Men have undergone, that might be a step too far. And I agree. Emma frames Kitty, or Kate, screw it, Kitty's inability to use the Krakoan gateways as an opportunity. Now, you might remember we've got those mutant miracle drugs, right? And how there are some nations that refuse to sign that treaty that recognizes Krakoa and all that. Well, that's where the black market comes into play, and right now, Emma needs a captain for this Hellfire trading company. I, I, I thought Sebastian Shaw was supposed to be handling this back alley stuff, but we'll let it go. Kitty assumes that she wasn't Emma's first choice, and obviously she wasn't. Uh, Storm actually turned for us down first. Emma shows Kitty a big old boat. Uh, they'll do the uh, backroom stuff, but also liberate mutants as they go. So they'll they'll deal other drugs and they'll pick up, uh, you know, 
trapped mutants. Or just mutants that can't make their way to Krakoa for whatever reason. Emma points to a couple of current problems concerning Krakoan gateways. We uh, go somewhere... We go to North Vinan, which I don't know if it's a real place or not. Apologies to any Vinan folk there, if, if it is real. Now, the gateway has been cordoned off by a family that runs the country. We go over to Brazil, and several gates are being guarded by what look like red-skinned warwolves, or maybe whatever the X-Men fought off during Second Coming, whatever those things were. Maybe those were warwolves, too, I don't know. Then, the really important stuff, wardrobe. Emma tells Kitty that she'll, quote, ravish in red. So, did we just find our final chair at the, at the Quiet Council, the, the Red King or Queen? Could that be our Kitty? I guess we'll find out. Now, this telepathic meeting adjourns, and we rejoin Kitty on the beach. Lockheed is having a... he's eating an entire crab and having just a heck of a time. We next rejoin Iceman as he's arrived on the other side of that trafficless gateway. He's in Russia, and from the looks and sounds of it, maybe Russia in the mid-1980s? I'm not a very worldly guy, but I don't... Do, do people still call Russia Mother Russia? Or is that something that, uh... I could be just talking up my ass here, I don't know. It just feels very, very, uh, 80s. Anyway, we're in Vladivostok, Vladivostok, Russia, where Iceman is confronted by the Russian armed forces who are being led by a fella named Phobos. Now, Phobos is looking very wild stormy here. He wears an outfit that makes him look like he should be, like, trying to shut down Gen 13 or something. Uh, he blasts Bobby with his blaster, which dampens his mutant power. So, Bobby's ice melts away, leaving just Bobby and his bloomers. He runs back through the gateway just in the nick of time, as the rest of the soldiers began to open fire at him. Back on the beach, Kitty is getting completely wasted. Bobby explains the situation in Mother Russia, and Kitty's all... Well, get on my boat. Let's go fight him. Uh, Storm shows up, and Kitty invites her along for the sail as well. From here, we shift scenes to Taipei, Taiwan. A woman is holding court, pontificating for the people not to trust the mutants. She claims that her husband touched one of the Krakoan gates and vanished. So, uh, is her husband a mutant then? I don't know. Anyway, she accuses the mutants of taking him and vows not to rest until he's returned. Now, among this crowd of folks is Bishop. And after they scatter, he approaches the woman. Her name is Mrs. Zhao. He introduces himself and says he's from Krakoa, and he asks for a moment to talk. She turns him down. Bishop informs Xavier of his progress, or lack thereof, before calling it a night. Back to the boat. While on the high seas, Pyro, who'd been stowed away, wakes up. Now, he was one of the first resurrectees, which to him was both an honor and an insult, because uh, he wasn't exactly happy about being used as a lab rat. And so, he figured he'd go ahead and steal himself a boat and leave the island. And it just so happened that it was this boat he was trying to steal before he, you know, fell asleep. Storm informs Pyro that he's now drafted, but he's got a promise to follow the law of Krakoa, which is, of course, kill no man. I feel like Pyro is the sort of character who's died a few times. Um, Bobby makes a comment. He's, he's surprised because this is the real one, which that's a beat that I don't remember in the slightest. Were there, were there Pyro clones? Maybe there were. I, I cannot recall off the top of my head. And the only Pyro I knew died of the legacy virus, but uh, I'm sure I've seen him again since, so Lord only knows. 
Meanwhile, in Russia, Phobos radios into his superiors that there haven't been any mutants since the Omega Iceman came through, and then he laments that he still wants to fight. You know, he's like, hey, they're not coming back, and I, I really, really want to fight. Well, be careful what you wish for, pal, because our crew has arrived. Now, this whole scene here plays out kind of like a, like a sizzle reel for our new take on Kitty Pride. Uh, she is completely ruthless here. We see her biffing dudes in the throat, pistol whipping with swiped guns, using said swiped gun to shoot a shoulder, shoot, shoot a soldier in the kneecap, then phasing said swiped gun into two other soldiers' legs before unfazing it. This is really brutal, and uh, gotta be honest, I'm not entirely sure how I feel about it. This is some hardcore stuff. A tank approaches, and so, with a sigh, Kitty phases inside where she pulls the pin from a smoke grenade before phasing out the other end. It is really just like a half dozen pages of uh, Kitty kicking butt here. Um, so, I mean, if that's what you want to see, you're getting it. If you don't, well, you're getting it anyway. Pyro asks for a light to which Lockheed breathes some flame. Pyro uses this to, well, from the looks of it, incinerate the Russian soldiers. Um, I mean, if we're still sticking to this kill-no-man edict, it's like maybe there are some fates worse than death, right? Um, <laughs> this is pretty brutal, uh, these, uh, these characters here. I gotta say, I do appreciate that Pyro's powers here are depicted correctly. You know, he cannot create fire, only control it, because a lot of X-Riders seem to forget that. Anyway, with the job done, Kitty approaches the Krakoan gateway that Phobos and co. were blocking to see if she's finally earned passage. She has not. The people of Russia run up to thank our team, to which Kitty turns to them and vows that, for the mutants of the world who cannot make it to Krakoa, the Marauders will bring them home. From here, we shift on to later. We're back on the boat, and Kitty's writing in her log. Back up on deck, she approaches Storm to inform her that she, Kitty, that is, cannot live on Krakoa. This doesn't seem to phase Storm. She understands and, and probably expected this. Storm does mention that she doesn't quite dig the name Marauders, which is completely understandable. And Kitty just says she, you know, she was on the spot when she came up with it, you know, so she, she just came up with the best thing she could. Kitty asks Storm if she can count on her, and Aurora gives the big thumbs up. However, with a caveat, Storm will only deal with Kitty, not Emma Frost. Kitty understands. We wrap up with Pride uh, telepathically telling Emma that their project is a go. And she actually says that she agrees to both of Frost's propositions, the second of which I'm assuming has something to do with Red Royalty, but I'm guessing that'll be made clearer as we go. So, we've got our team, and we wrap up with Kitty telling everyone to call her Kate. I probably won't be doing that. Uh, we close out the issue with, uh, hey, more of some of my favorite Hoxpox info pages. It's the Sinister Secrets, numbers 11 through 15. Now, Secret 11, let's get into these. Whispers of a mutant getting a big offer, but it's one that won't last. And also that they weren't the first or second choice. So that's almost got to be referring to Kitty getting the offer to be the Red Whatever in the Quiet Council's Hellfire Quarter, I'm, I'm guessing. It says here that it won't last, which, let's be honest, this is current year Marvel. Chances are we're going to get a reboot within the year anyway. So it's, what are you going to do? Secret number 12, a warning about, a, about shipping mutant medicine in the Red Sea. Um... 
I'm really not sure, but it sounds suitably foreshadowy, right? I mean, maybe this is just a little glimpse into the future, a glimpse into a story that's yet to be told. Uh, I guess not everything needs is like a riddle that needs to be solved. Secret number 13. Not every Hellfire alumnus has been invited in. I'm going to assume this is another bit of foreshadowing, because uh, trying to think over who we've seen so far, I know we saw Celine. Uh Sage is on the island. Uh, sure, we saw him. We saw Frost. We haven't seen Donald Pierce, and we haven't seen Harry Leland yet. I don't know if this is foreshadowing their returns. Uh, we'll wait and see. Secret 14. Something about sheet-wearing humans and looky-loos crowding the gates. Another one I'm not sure about. Uh, I mean, sheet-wearing humans is clearly supposed to make us think of something, right? Um, and looky-loos at the gates, maybe the Krakoan gates. Could that be a reference to the scene in Taiwan? Maybe. Secret 15. It's, it sounds like there might be a second secret boat involved in the mutant drug, fray, d- d- drug trade, even. Easy for me to say. So these pretty much all feel like foreshadowing, which makes them... It really it makes them a little less fun than the original ten uh, sinister secrets, though it does give us plenty to keep our eyes peeled for. If uh, if I remember, <laughs> as we work through these issues, um, yeah, the ten that we got during Hoxpox were a little bit more fun than this uh, because it felt like it felt like you could use your ex knowledge and your ex experience to maybe not so much solve them, but you know put some pieces in place here where. I don't know, these are these are a little bit more liquid, a little bit more just yeah. They the, you know, the things that are coming. It's and it's hard to uh it's hard to predict sometimes. And I have proven over the past uh you know, 13 episodes that it's uh it's pretty hard to predict things <laughs> and not not come across as woefully wrong. Um and that is a wrap for this issue. The next one we'll discuss is Excalibur number 1. But now let's talk about the book we just read. First, Kitty, Kate, Ms. Pride. Uh, now, they've, they've tried to turn Kitty into, like, a tough girl on several occasions, but up until now, they really haven't ever stuck the landing. Uh, I feel like, like every time they give her, like, like a shorter haircut, they, they give her this new tough personality. Um, I remember the Claremont return uh, and then X-Men Gold, that launch, are two examples that come, come to mind immediately. Here, though, they're handling it a little bit differently. Um, and maybe maybe a little too extreme for my tastes. Um, it's certainly effective. I mean, seeing her just decimate the Russian soldiers, I, I mean, wouldn't, wouldn't you figure like Storm would be like, hey, yep, calm down a little bit, maybe cool it. Uh, I mean, she really messed those dudes up. Phasing the gun into the two guys' legs, fusing them together... That's that's some screwed up stuff, isn't it? <laughs> it's very very brutal and uh, very extreme, and uh, I really don't know how I feel about it. Um, I, maybe I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I do like the uh, the wrinkle here that uh, for whatever reason Kitty can't use the gateways and. Uh, Okay, what does it say about me where my first thought upon seeing Kitty not make her way through the gateway was that Marvel was trying to establish that Kitty wasn't a mutant. 
so they could uh, cram her into whatever the next Guardians of the Galaxy movie was as a you know as what's his face's love interest. <laughs> it's <laughs> that that was what I was thinking here. I'm like, oh no, she's going to be a miracle now, or she's going to be an inhuman. <laughs> it's like once bitten, twice shy, or maybe like many times bitten, even more times shy with uh, the way Marvel does things. Uh, hopefully, the actual explanation to this will be a lot more interesting. I mean, it would almost have to be. So Kitty slash Kate is going to take me a little bit of time to get used to. I didn't dislike it. It's just kind of jarring. In fairness, I mean, I've been totally transparent with the fact that I did skip most of the Blue and Gold era and the latest volume of Uncanny. So I may have missed some character development and evolution there that would make this seem a little bit less extreme than it actually sort of feels like. I, I, I will always uh, <laughs> do my best to be honest about what I know and what I don't know. And uh, what happened to Kitty, Kate, over the past couple of years is something I don't know. Let's talk the Hellfire Trading Company. Awesome idea. Uh, it finally makes the mutant miracle drug feel like a you know front and center story thread. I feel like it hadn't been adequately explored up to this point in Hoxpox. Uh, so I'm very happy to see it here being fleshed out. Having Kitty and her crew in charge of, you know, the uh, black market is a very clever idea, and I mean, if you're looking for a hook to hang this series on, that's that's a that's a heck of a hook. That's a good one. Um, in the build-up here, we had the back and forth between Kitty and Emma. That, that felt right. I look forward to more, especially if there comes a time where Kitty does take a seat at the Quiet Council table. I think there's a lot of meat on that bone. I think that could be very, very interesting. Um, and uh, just seeing the way she will interact with the rest of the council will be uh, will be a lot of fun, I think. I think her voice would be very unique in that situation, or among those folks. As for the rest of the Marauders, what can I say? This is a fun little team. This is a really fun little team. Um, Storm... Doesn't feel like she's got a stick up her butt, which is a welcome change of pace for her. Iceman and Pyro being on the same team, I mean, that opens up a lot of interesting possibilities, both in story and comedy. You know, this could be very, very silly. Uh, now, Bishop, despite, you know, being part of the cast, he hasn't yet sailed with the crew yet, but I suppose we can assume he eventually will. Like I said, this is a fun little team, and uh, I'm really looking forward to seeing where they're headed with this. I can't, for the life of me, figure out why I didn't read the second issue when I bought it last year. Because this this was a hell of a lot of fun. Um, now, sticking with Bishop, the uh, Taiwan scene was brief, but it gave me those those old-fashioned bubbling subplot feels. You know, like uh, you think about the X-Men of the old Claremont days, you know, where we know this scene, it, it only gets a little bit of space here, but you, we know it'll take center stage eventually. Uh, and we're just getting a taste of it, but it will get there and it will take over. I feel like comics just aren't written this way so much anymore. Um, then again, I mean, this could all wind up paying off next issue. But uh, let's be optimistic. <laughs> you know, maybe, just maybe, we're getting a little taste of old school serial comic storytelling here. And uh, at least for the moment, I'm very, very happy to see something like this. Overall... A great first issue. Uh, Marauders is a very strange concept. And like I said uh, at the outset here, it feels like it might wind up being like the odd Dark Horse favorite of the line. Uh, a few of the folks I've talked to and a few of the people who've written in 
Marauders gets high marks just about everywhere you you look. Where I, I don't know exactly which books are you know being considered the the uh, less living up to the potential of the line, but Marauders usually doesn't come up in that conversation. Marauders is usually looked at as being as being a must read or a top tier. So I enjoyed it. Looking forward to more. Can't for the life of me figure out why I didn't read issue two in the fall, last fall. But uh, we're uh, we're gonna call it right there. But before I let you go, I do have a wonderful piece of mail uh, in the uh, in the old mailbag here from Jason Colby. I think either the last episode or the one before that, uh, I said that he was gonna be sending his uh, his notes and his his thoughts on uh, Hoxpox and the rollout. So. So happy to see it here, and can't wait to dig into it. He starts, Hi Chris, it's been fun reliving the experience of reading Hickman's Big X Takeover through your reactions. These books were the first time I'd really dived into the X world in real time, as it was being published. And that's, oddly, something I've heard a few times now. And I find it so interesting that it was this run that's so so different uh, in, in... aesthetics and um import <laughs> you know that 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 inspired folks to dive in um i think that's very very interesting you know if if this was your jumping on point for the x-men overall or or you know even just in real time just not reading the the classic stuff uh past you know from the past I, i'd love to hear reasons why this was what drew you in um i've heard a few things uh just it's very interesting to me because uh oddly enough it's kind of it's kind of the position I was in coming back I, I didn't pay attention to Hoxpox, uh, but with the new X-Men number one the dawn of X books it pulled me back in a big way and I could I can't even think of why I I don't have any reasons why it did it was just it just felt like something I I should be a part of so it's it's very interesting to me uh, back to Jason's mail. It says, The Hawks and Pox books were, as you now know, quite a shock. They felt very different from a typical DC or Marvel book. They felt like they had something to say. They felt like the products of an individual mind that had thought very deeply about these characters for a long time and had made very specific, very considered decisions about what he wanted to say. They were packed full of ideas, nearly full nearly to bursting. I didn't always like every choice Hickman made, hated some of them, but each decision felt like it had been made intentionally with a specific predetermined purpose in mind. Agree 100%. Whether I personally agreed with the bits of the story or not, everything did feel meaningful and purposeful. I, I, you know, I did mention that the far-flung future felt a little bit um, head in its bum <laughs> and self-satisfied, but... Everything was with a purpose. That I cannot argue. Uh, Jason continues, We all have our own heuristics for what makes a comics purchase worth it. For me, if in the days and weeks after the few minutes it takes for me to read through a comic for the first time, I still find, my, I find myself still thinking about it, that comic was a worthwhile purchase. By that metric, Hawks and Pox are among the biggest bargains I ever picked up, even though I paid full price for them on Comixology. I thought about them on my own. I participated in the online discussions and speculations about them as they came out. And now I'm thinking about them all over again as I relive the series along with you. 
And dude, that is an awesome way to assign value to a comic, and honestly, not one I ever thought of. Um, that's really... That is super cool. Um, I never thought of that, and it really... <laughs> it might make me change the way I judge, th- judge a comic as being worthy. I mean, I've read... I've read stuff that uh, that is stuck with me, and, and a lot of this is stuck with me. And by that same token, or on the other side of that coin, um, there are probably books I hold in esteem that I never gave a second thought to, <laughs> which is weird. No, that's that's not that. This is why I love this feedback section here, because I, I, it really opens my mind up to just different points of view and. Uh, I feel like I'm learning a lot <laughs> just by talking with uh, with folks about uh, the way they view things and the way uh, just all of our individual prisms, you know. Um, I think judging a comic's worth by what you get out of it in as far as uh, interaction and participation and and it just taking up space in your mind because you 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 can't you you, you don't want to let it go. That's an awesome. That's an awesome metric. Uh, that that's super cool. I, I'm and I'm gonna try to, I'm gonna try to use that myself. Uh, Jason continues, and that's where the post hox pox books haven't quite lived up to their beginnings. They almost couldn't. There are just so many books by so many authors that a singular focus isn't there, and really isn't possible. That's a very good point. And I'm gonna expand on that after Jason's next point. I know that Hickman, as head of X, is overseeing all of these, but that arm's-length relationship to those books necessarily dilutes what he can put into them. There are still some interesting ideas here, but those ideas aren't quite as big and are parceled out more stingily by authors who need to fill reams of pages with limited supply of imagination. In short, the ongoings feel less like the expression of an inspired, passionate artist and more like standard, normal, typical 21st century Marvel comic books. And when I'm done reading one, I'm a lot less likely to keep thinking about it after that last page has been turned. Now, a little bit behind the curtain here. This is actually something I was a little worried about when I decided to continue this show past the initial 12-part event. If we go back to Hoxpox, with each and every issue and each and every episode... We were building off what came before, right? We were, I mean, we had predictions that were being built upon and and contradicted and everything was building. We were just, we were building this beautiful house, you know, from foundation to roof. And every episode was a little bit more. Love it or hate it, everything that was going on was building toward something. Here, with the regular monthlies, however... That feeling of urgency and growth, it might not be there. At least not necessarily, you know, maybe not entirely. I mean, we're only two issues in at this point, so I can't say with any certainty. But, you know, just like Jason said, it stands to reason that the Dawn of X books will not be able to live up to what came before. There are too many voice, too many different voices, and honestly, probably two or three too many books overall. I mean, it's... It's hard to keep, as, as Jason put it perfectly, that focus. And, I mean, every book has its own goal, where Hawks and Pox, 
there was one goal, you know, it was that there was one story being told between those two, and they fed into each other almost flawlessly. I didn't love everything, but it they fed into each other, and we were building. Every step of the way, we were building. Here, and I don't have any kind of uh, <laughs> knowledge of what comes after, you know, Excalibur, but... It's almost impossible when you have six books that are going to inflate into like eight to keep that sort of razor sharp focus. And uh, we're just going to play it though. We're going to keep going. <laughs> we're going to keep going. Uh, back to Jason's message though. He says, Don't get me wrong. They're not bad exactly. Well, most of them aren't. They're just less extraordinary. And Jonathan Hickman whet my appetite for the extraordinary. No doubt. No doubt and that's a perfect way to say it now i'm definitely looking forward to seeing where things are going and uh i i I really hope uh to jason and everybody we can continue this conversation as more and more pieces fall into place here because i think uh maybe we'll need the moral support to keep going but uh, but i i definitely want to see because we are all so different and uh you know, just like I absolutely adored this issue of Marauders, there very well could be someone listening right now who said who said to themselves, Marauders was an awful book. You know? I can get the Fallen Angels number four and be like, ugh, what am I still reading this for? But that might be someone's favorite. So I, I love the conversation and the discussion, just seeing what all of us like and what all of us don't like and, and how that uh, how we're different and how we're the same. Uh, it's, that's a lot of fun to me. Um, now, back to the uh, back to the email. He says, "So that's my big picture reaction, but now on to some smaller, more specific bits. First, the X to the third power timeline, so the year 1000. You're not alone in finding these bits less enthralling than the rest of the strands. I'm certainly in the same boat. These characters are harder to relate to, harder to give a damn about. There is a purpose here, but it feels more academic in nature. In my mind, and it may be only in my mind, the transfer of humanity into robots, which are then merged into a giant universal techno-brain, is meant to ask, what is the ultimate goal of a people of humans of mutants? Is uplift winning or losing? Mora keeps living her life over and over like Bill Murray, trying to get it right. What is getting it right? What ultimate ending should she be aiming for? What's the point? What's the purpose? Do points and purposes even exist? These are, to understate just a little, big questions to be exploring in a book that's going to sit on the shelves next to Squirrel Girl and Spider-Ham. And I'm not sure Hickman pulls it off entirely successfully. Okay, I'm pretty sure he doesn't. But I'm still thinking about it, and, as I said above, that counts as a win in my book. This is excellently stated. Excellently stated here. I mean... It, it let, let's look at the uh, you know the ultimate goal of of the uh, of the posthumans. Uh, what what is the goal there? Uh, the librarian even stops to consider what the goal is before you know before the end there too. As far as Mora, I've talked about this over the past couple of episodes. We we get this discussion that the X Men always lose. How do we define that? How how does Mora know that? What is what is winning? What is losing? It's it's very that's very interesting food for thought, and um, I think that's something that comics fans can discuss and debate 
you know, going into going into infinity. You know, um, I I've been questioning this myself. I like, how do you define? I keep going back to I think it was Mora's second life where she dies in a plane crash. How how did the X Men lose there? You know uh, what what? It, and now we have you know the in her tenth life we got rid of the mother mold, but we don't know if that's the only life we got rid of the mother mold. So is that winning? Uh, what's right? What's wrong? That's you, you're you're asking the perfect questions, and uh, I don't know. It's 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 some very very heady stuff here. And it's very interesting to to parse out and consider. Um, back to uh, back to the email. Resurrection. I think this is a truly interesting choice. Comic books have be, have made death meaningless. This is known. Jane Foster didn't even have time to achieve room temperature before being, if you believe in fairies, clap your hands into the new Valkyrie. But this book hangs a lampshade on the meaninglessness of a comic book death and says, okay, now that's off the table, and we're going to create drama from other less devalued sources. That's a strong choice. Yes, 100%. 100%. And I think the way I put it in episode 12 was something along the lines of, like, not necessarily lessening the stakes, but just changing them. Like, uh, we're not going to worry about death anymore. We're going to worry about other things. You know, the... The uh, the scenery, the trappings. We're gonna worry about that stuff. We're gonna we're gonna play with those concepts rather than the literal lives and deaths of characters. Because, as stated, you know, what is death in a comic book? It's just not it's not something that's taken seriously. It uh, and it's to this point, it's been overused so much that it's not. I don't even think it's something that really pops a uh, a decent buy rate anymore because it's just. It's done too much. Um, it used to be done for shock, and now, you know, the law of diminishing returns, there ain't no shock anymore. So this is, as Jason put it, a very strong choice because we're going to be playing with different things here. And that's awesome. Uh, back to uh, back to the email. One religious-slash-philosophical philosoph- religious idea related to resurrection hasn't gotten the attention I hoped it would, and that's, are the resurrected mutants really, truly the same people who died? They have identical bodies and the same DNA, and have been imprinted with the most recent backup of a person's memories, but does that make them the same person? Does the soul hop over into this new vessel the way a person might put on a new suit to replace one that was worn out at the elbows? With the heroic sacrifices made by Logan and Kurt to destroy the destroy the mother mold, not really heroic because they weren't really sacrifices because they weren't really dead, or are those Logan and Kurt actually dead? But now we have some shiny new ones to replace the way replace them the way parents might buy a distraught child a new identical pair of goldfish to replace the ones just flushed off into the hereafter. I don't think Hickman is interested in this idea. Or at least, or at the very least, doesn't want us to be distracted by it. He uses words like essence and anima, and rushes along into the bits of the story he prefers. It's the only place where I feel like we're getting hand-waving instead of actual thought. Awesomely put. Awesomely put. Um, and if I were a more eloquent speaker, I would try <laughs> to offer up my opinion there. But you're 100% dead on. Um... The thing that got me was how quick the Krakoans were to accept this. 
you know, as Storm is doing her, you know, her Catholic mass there, or her, not even Catholic mass, her, her culty mass, uh, where she's, you know, yelling out into the crowd here, and everybody's accepting this. It just seems so strange. Uh, it's it's uncanny, you know. It's very very odd that they're just so willing. They're so brainwashed into accepting that this is the uh, the new normal, and nobody's asking these questions. We're not even getting a character asking these questions and being hand waved away. We're just not getting the question. Um, I don't know if this will ever be dealt with. I hope it is. I, I but then again, I mean. These next issues could change everything. I don't know, because uh, I just don't know. Um, it's very Your points here are very, very interesting here, because we think about... We just talked about how we're removing death from the equation, right? How that's become such a, such a non-thing. But we are still dealing with heroes here, and you know, part of being heroic is making sacrifices or putting yourself in a position where a sacrifice might be made and do are we making these characters lesser heroes by by making them i don't know how to put it um by making them making things less final making things making these decisions to put yourself into a dangerous situation so much easier to make because you know, jumping back to those stakes, there just aren't any. Nightcrawler pops Wolverine out to that arm so he can start cutting the collar off the, the mother mold. If not for this resurrection gimmick, that would have been a truly heartbreaking scene. But now looking back, it was, uh, you know, it was like that video game Lemmings, you know, just just another one stepping off the cliff. But there's a million more behind it. It's... It does kind of ch- reframe the concept of the X-Men as heroes because they're uh, yeah because they they don't need to be as careful and they don't need to think quite as hard about the decisions they have to make. Very very interesting stuff here. Really interesting stuff. Um, a lot more interesting than I thought initially. <laughs> it's uh, very very cool. Um, uh, Jason goes on to say, For what it's worth, the Star Trek transporters have always made me ask the same questions. Yes, Kirk was there, and now he's here, but is it the same Kirk? Like, really the same Kirk? And how would we know if it weren't? And does it matter? It didn't to Roddenberry, and it doesn't, at least so far, to Hickman. And I don't know a whole lot about Star Trek, but, uh, <laughs> but, I, but I, your point is very well taken. Uh, back to the message. Uh, Namor agreed the one page we see of Chucky X meeting with the King of Atlantis was just splendid. Namor may be the finest character in all of Marvel. I really like the way he was used in the semi-recent Invaders book by Chip Zdarsky. I think it's Zdarsky. Zadar- I, I think he does a book later on. I think he does X-Men Fantastic Four, so I'm going to have to learn to say his name by then. And I recommend that to any of my fellow fans of the wing-footed Submariner who may have missed it when it came out. And uh, I'm one of those people. I didn't even know there was an Invaders run. Um, I feel like around the time of Marvel now, there were like four or five <laughs> Invaders volumes that they put out. And none of them caught fire. But uh, I might have to check this one out. If uh, if Namor is, uh, is such a player in it, for sure. Um, next, we go to Wild Speculation. Jason says, it's been a blast hearing you make educated guesses and take wild swings as you made your way through these series. They certainly invite it. 
I can tell you that some of your bets have been dead on, some have been way off, and a good chunk of them have yet to be seen. I want to share with you my own wildest speculation that I had during my first read. I, too, was suspicious of the identity of the alleged Charles Xavier who was running the show while never showing his head. I looked at the way he was drawn. I looked at the choices he was making. I looked at the way he was getting everyone around him to choose to do his bidding. I looked at the unusual for Marvel way all the word bubbles in these books were being lettered. Christopher, I thought Charles Xavier was really the maker. Christopher, I was wrong. I guess this counts as a spoiler, but alas, my personal credibility and bragging rights, the new mutant homeworld of Krakoa is not being controlled by an evil alternate Ultimate Universe version of Reed Richards. And wow, I haven't thought of the Maker in like forever, like 10 years, 15 years, I haven't thought of the Maker. Uh, the Maker is, you know, Reed Richards in the Ultimate Universe, just uh, evil. And it's one of the very few bits of the Ultimate Universe I really, really enjoyed, simply because it wasn't just a retread of an ages-old Marvel story. Um, I feel like the Ultimate line started off pretty strong, but then, like, within a year, it was like, okay, well, we had Spider-Man do this, uh, you know, in 1960-something, so how about we just update it? Okay, okay. Oh, we had a Clone Saga. Let's do a Clone Saga over here. Oh, we had Venom. Let's do Venom over here. Oh, we had the death of whoever over here. Let's do it over here. It just felt so samey. And uh, really, really t- took the wind out of my sails when it came to reading uh, anything <laughs> from the Ultimate line. But turning Reed Richards into, like, the big bad of the universe, that's that's a very interesting take. And I, I did enjoy that. And, you know, it would make a lot of sense. We got Hickman writing, and he's got a long history with Mr. Fantastic. And, you know, the character of the Maker had a pretty similar look to uh, to the professor here, but complete with a helmet. So this is really a heck of a guess, and didn't make my list. But you know, that's this is a good guess, <laughs> a damn good guess. Uh, and to be completely honest, I'm really just happy to be learning more and more that I wasn't alone in assuming or suggesting that the man in the cerebro helmet wasn't Xavier, because I was nervous about making those predictions because. I mean, everything we read told us it was him, but we didn't see his face, you know? He wasn't showing his face. He didn't show his head. Um, so I was just grasping. And, and he was acting bizarre. You know, everybody called him Xavier or Charles or Professor, but he was acting so bizarre and so out of character. And um, those were... I was I was really like considering not even making those predictions on the show because I thought I'd be uh, <laughs> thought I'd be hurting my my own credibility there, but uh, but I'm I'm so happy to hear that I that I'm not uh, I'm learning more and more that I was not alone in that so that's very very cool. Uh, Jason wraps up his missive with that's all from me. So until Cerebro runs out of RAM, make mine X lapsed, and that made my day <laughs> to be to have a make mine uh, for the show. That made my day. That made my week. So thank you so much, Jason, for that. And thanks, everyone, for hanging out and, uh, and you know, dealing with me. Uh, I very, very much appreciate it. It's hard for me to put into words how much I appreciate it, but I, I damn sure do. Now, if you'd like to reach out with any of your hot takes, any of your uh, feedback, definitely, definitely, please do so. Ace Comics on Twitter or weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. 
You can find me at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com or the newish xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com where it'll just be these shows. So none of the other stuff, just these shows in the order they're meant to be listened to. So if you're discovering this show and you want to go back, that might be the easiest way to do it, though the uh, chrisandreggie.podbean.com isn't really all that messed up toward the tail end. So you might be able to go there and, uh, and get them just as well. But that's all from me today. One more time, thanks everybody for listening. Uh, Big thanks to Jason for writing in. And until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 21 of Axe Lapsed. And uh, this is a, a weird episode because, uh, you, well, you won't be able to tell from listening to it because uh, the, the episodes are still coming out every day, but I've been banking these, right? I've been, even on days where an episode doesn't come out because we got something else cooking here at the channel, I'm still recording an episode, you know? And uh, with this episode, I actually skipped a day um, because... I wasn't quite sure how to compile my thoughts on it, um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in our you know little talking time segment at the end here or toward the end. Um, this is Marauders number two. Now Marauders number one was uh, you know teeter tottering at the top of my uh, you know best of the issue ones uh, pile uh, alongside New Mutants. So let's see if uh, if it holds its position or if maybe it uh, maybe it doesn't. Um, let's get right into it. Marauders number 2, January 2020 cover date. The story is called The Red Coronation. Written by Jerry Duggan, with art by Matteo Lali. Colors by Federico Blee. Letters VCs Corey Petit. Designs Tom Muller, head of X Hickman. Edits Robinson White Sobolski. Cover price $3.99. Went on sale November 20th, 2019. And, uh, well, this issue, uh, has what you might call like a spoilery cover, uh, though the events uh, that are about to be revealed hardly feel like a big gotcha because it's uh, been pretty well alluded to 
up to this point. Um, the cover has uh, Sebastian Shaw and Emma Frost stood before like a little like a war room table, you know, and they're pushing pieces around. And one of them is a giant red, you know, boat front with a kitty on it. And we're looking to fill a red seat, put two and two together, and uh, I think we can figure this one out. We don't need uh, Sherlock Holmes for this one. Anyway, we open her up, and the first thing we see is our roll call for uh, this second issue, so let's meet the folks. Emma Frost, Sebastian Shaw, Kate Pride, Lockheed, Pyro, Iceman, and Storm. Hi, I guess we're not getting a Bishop appearance this time out, huh? Uh, from here, double page spread a cred, and then the in- an info page. <laughs> now... This info page shares some semi-redacted government document uh, chronicling the adventures or exploits of the Marauders up to this point. Whoever is writing this is doing so from somewhere called the X-Desk, and they're not all that happy about what's going on. And uh, I'm not all that happy that it's taken us up to our fifth page to get the comics, but what are you going to do? We finally open, and it's Emma Frost telepathically chatting up the Cuckoos. They give her an answer of no, we're not privy to the question, but we might assume. Uh, remember last issue, we got some sinister secrets that implied that Kitty wasn't the first or second choice for a certain role that's about to be revealed. Now we know Storm was asked and declined, and now it would appear that the Cuckoos were asked as well. Now, M is preparing to have a Hellfire Trading Company meeting with her partner Sebastian Shaw, and she ain't looking forward to it. One of the cuckoos suggests it's going to be an absolute S-show. As we pop back to reality, uh, Emma and Sebastian are having a meeting in London. Emma mentions that it doesn't look like Shaw's doing all that well when it comes to his P&Ls, you know, his profits and losses. A lot of red ink in them books. And uh, we get a lot of mentions of red here. We're getting beaten over the head with red here. They're even drinking red wine. Uh... Now, Shaw is none too pleased by being taken to task by Frost, and he throws it in her face that, you know, she can just stroll into any bank and walk out with, like, all the monies, right? Uh, Emma's like, eh, too bad, so sad, and she reminds him that he's got to keep a neater house. Looks like Shaw's using a non-kitty captained boat to move the merchandise, and it doesn't look like they had all that great a maiden voyage, and uh, we will get there. Uh, the topic of conversation briefly shifts over to that red throne before we shift scenes to the high seas. Now, the marauders are locked in a battle with a group of goons being led by... <sighs> Batrock the frickin' Leaper. Do, do we still find this guy like LOL Internet Random Funny? I, I don't think I ever did, but a lot of folks seem to. I, I, I don't know. Uh, anyway, Kitty and the crew make embarrassingly short work out of the geeks... Our captain phases through to the hold and finds all the merch. It's Krakoan, so uh, looks like Sebastian Shaw, the master manipulator of the Hellfire Club, has entrusted, and has entrusted his shipping routes to Batrock the Friggin' Leaper. Come on. Okay, Batrock, he approaches Kitty to see if there's any way they might work out a deal. You know, split the profits, whatever it takes. Uh, Kitty declines the offer, stating that mutant money now grows on trees, and as such... They really don't need the jack. She then tosses him overboard. Uh, Kitty and company commandeer the boat, leaving Batrock and his geeks on a little life raft. The marauders set sail for Taipei, where Pyro and Iceman proceed to auction off their new boat to the highest local bidder. We hop back to London, where Shaw is absolutely furious that Emma's team screwed his team. And he's also quite upset that Batrock is mad at him. But, but I mean, come on, it's, it's friggin' Batrock, come on. 
Uh, Shaw warns Emma that things will be different once he installs an ally in the red seat, to which Emma informs him that, eh, that seat's already been taken. Uh, she actually took care of all that before she even approached Shaw about a return. All right, so let's see what the kids are up to in Taipei. Kitty's, uh, well, she's getting drunk, which appears to be her gimmick. Uh, the team dances with some locals before running into, hey, it's Bishop. I wonder why he didn't rate for a little box on that roll call page, but, uh, what are you going to do? Bishop informs the Marauders that Professor X has been assassinated here. Uh, there's a bit of stunned silence, then Iceman tries to break the ice by assuring everyone that they can believe in the Five to bring him back. Pyro is not so sure. A drunk kitty then wanders into a tattoo shop, which doesn't seem like the best of ideas at this juncture. Uh, now we watch as she gets her, her knuckles tattooed. Storm ain't too pleased, but doesn't really raise any firm objections. Uh, Iceman isn't so sure either. Uh, Bishop comments that he's already got a tattoo, and, you know, it really wasn't his choice to get it. Pyro, on the other hand, plops himself down to get, like, a full-face Punisher skull tattooed on his on his face. I mean, okey-doke. Um, now, once the deeds are done, Kitty tosses a wad of cash at the tattooist before forcing a kiss on him. As uh, she leaves, we can see that her knuckles have been tatted with hold and fast. Okay. Now, Emma makes telepathic contact and informs them that Gateway will warp them to London, and so that's exactly what happens. And, you know, we were we actually referred to a piece... Uh, we covered a letter from Damien a couple of episodes back where he was referring to a piece that crit- criticized the depiction of Storm as being a very light-skinned woman. I said then that I didn't notice it, but let's look at Gateway here for a sec. He he just looks like a white guy. Like, he doesn't look light-skinned, he looks white-skinned. Very strange. Anywho, they step through the portal and they pop out on board their brand new rig, the Marauder. And, uh, needless to say, they all love their new digs. Kitty goes to leave to attend to some business, which Iceman asks if she's sure she wants to do. Before we know it, we're back at the Frost Shore Consortium, and uh, Emma keeps needling Sebastian to the point where he actually grabs her by the throat and slams her into the wall. Uh, he then tells her that there won't be a Red King, and uh, this sentiment is agreed upon because it's uh, not going to be a Red King, it's going to be a Red Queen. Any any guesses? Any guesses who that Red Queen's going to be? Uh, no? Um, if you, well, if you said Kitty and a Captain Morgan get up, you'd be right. Oh, and she's also drinking again. Uh, we wrap up with a tree chart of the Hellfire Trading Company with a whole lot of blanks, which tells me we're probably going to be seeing this one a lot as positions get filled in. Uh, at the very top, there's a position called Lord Imperial, and it's listed as vacant. Uh, from Lord Imperial, we get the three royal seats, you know, black, white, and red. And each of those have a bishop and a knight below them. So let's start with the white. The white monarch is Emma Frost, duh. The white bishop is Christian Frost, Emma's brother. The white knight is vacant. The black monarch is, of course, Sebastian Shaw. The black bishop is awaiting accolades. And the black knight is vacant. The Red Monarch is Captain Kate Pride. The Red Bishop is awaiting accolades, but, I mean, it couldn't be as easy as just making it Bishop, right? I guess we'll find out. Uh, the Red Knight is vacant, and that's that. Uh, next up, we've got the New Mutants. But, uh, 
let's uh, let's get a sip of something here, um, alcoholic or otherwise, and discuss what we just read. Now, I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, I actually sat on this, you know, little talking time bit for a little over a day because I wasn't quite sure how to how to approach it, um, and I still don't. <laughs> Um, I've got some bullet points here, uh, that I'll try to have make some sense here. Um, I, I like the story quite a bit, um, but I'm not completely on board, pun intended, with Kitty. I, she's very off-putting, and, uh, I mean, a lot of characters are, so that's forgivable, but she's also, and it, it hurts me to say it, she's really, 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 really annoying. Um, I will, let's put a pin in that. Put a pin on that for now. Uh, the Hellfire bits that framed this one were kind of neat, but, uh, I, I don't think the intended reaction here was, like, sympathy for Shaw, but that's what I started to feel. I actually started to feel bad for him. I mean, he's an a-hole, right? We know that. But Emma came across kind of worse. Um, I, I feel like every, you know, aha and gotcha that we got here were completely unearned. I mean... Let's look at this here. The deck is already so stacked against Shaw, right? So what's the sport in beating him every time out? There's no sport in that. It's Shaw is a clown, and it's uh, it makes Emma look petty. It makes Shaw look like an idiot. It just nobody's coming out of this looking good. It's like you're not really slipping one past the goalie when the goalie's sleeping at the net, right? And we got Shaw here who is just woefully. You know, uh, unprepared to deal with uh, everything that Emma's already put in place. Uh, let's talk about Batrock for a second. Um, now, anytime I see him in a comic, I. This is me projecting, but I always assume that the writer is sitting there writing, like rubbing their hands together, waiting for all the memes to start rolling in. Uh, you know, Batrock is like the lame villain du jour, is, in my opinion, like 15 years past its sell by date. Just not funny anymore. If it ever was, which I'm not sure it was. I mean, I know, like, I think he was like a more to the month in Wizard that might have gotten a, you know, a lip curl out of me, but it's just enough. We get it. He's, he's, he sucks. We get it. Um, let's talk about the tattoos. Now, cards on the table, I'm not a tattoo person myself. I feel like that's way too big a commitment for me to make. Um, uh, you know, I was I was dating my wife for near a decade before proposing. So, <laughs> you know, that's commitment is uh, you know, knowing something will be on my body forever. It's just not not something I'm gonna do. Uh, you know, if, if that's your thing, that's cool, but not not my uh, not my deal. Now, a few episodes ago, I was reading a message from Damien who was discussing Kitty perhaps eschewing her Jewish Jewish customs. You know, her heritage. And um, Damien and I both commented that we have, like, very little familiarity with Jewish customs, but uh, there is one thing I learned about tattoos. Uh, now, being, being a guy with a New York accent living in Arizona, um, people usually assume that I am either Italian or Jewish. And, uh, you know, I've got dark hair. Um, I talk like this, uh, so people, if I'm around Italian people, they generally assume I'm Italian. If I'm around Jewish people, they usually assume that I'm Jewish. And uh, I used to be a windshield repairman, so I would drive around 
sunny, hot Phoenix, Arizona, repairing windshields. And uh, one day I ran across this uh, gentleman who, uh, who asked me if my mother was proud. He, he assumed I was Jewish and he was uh, going to go into uh, like a Jewish, Jewish mother, you know, stereotype joke. Uh, he was also, you know, I mean, he was Jewish. I'm not. But, uh, but he asked if my mother's proud of me, you know, working on a Sunday repairing windshields. And I laughed, you know. And he told me that uh, his goal was to, because uh, he told me his mother wasn't proud of him because his goal in life was to become a comedian. And uh, he wasn't terribly funny, but uh, he asked if he could try out his uh, parts of his act on me. And I mean, I'm a captive audience. I'm I'm up on his on his van, you know, fixing a hole in his window. <laughs> you know, I, I ain't going anywhere. So he starts telling me uh, this joke about how he wanted to get a tattoo, and his mother said that you know that goes against Jewish customs to get a tattoo. And uh, he made a comment about how it's also against Jewish customs, you know, in traditionally not to get cremated. And, I mean, this is a very forced joke this fellow was telling me. He really wanted this joke to pay off exactly the way it was going to. So he told his mother that they'd make a compromise, and he would get the words, do not cremate, tattooed on his body. So he'd get his tattoo, and he still wouldn't get cremated. So he thought it was a raucous laugh. I laughed because I was hoping to get a tip. Uh, I didn't. But, uh... That's that's one thing I know about... uh, And that's even if this guy's on the level, but... That's a, a Jewish custom that I found out about by accident. So, Kitty getting a tattoo, that might be something. I don't know. Uh, I've never heard it before or since that tattoos were taboo, but uh, perhaps that's what they're alluding to here. I don't know. But uh, that's what I. It, that's the first thing I thought of when I saw her getting a tattoo, because the uh, discussion that Damien and I had was fresh in my mind, and I went right to this uh, this hot. Sunday afternoon where I was repairing this guy's windshield. But uh, anyway, as for Kitty and Pyro getting inked, eh, you know, what are you going to do? Um, I don't know. Uh, you know, overall, I'd have to say, personally, I feel like this was a big step down from the opening issue. Uh, still enjoyable enough. Um, maybe I'll get on board with the way Kitty's being depicted. Maybe maybe I won't. I don't know. Um and I'm not someone who has this, you know, <laughs> another thing we talked about was people calling Kitty, or people having it in their head that Kitty's kind of their girlfriend. I never had that. Uh, she was uh, she was nowhere around when I started reading comics. She was on Ex- she was on Excalibur, and Excalibur cost a buck seventy-five instead of a dollar, so I never read it uh, back then. So I didn't really have any Kitty in my formative years. Oof. I, I just... I should I should say those things out loud more often before I commit them to uh, audio. Anyway, before I let you go, let's get into some feedback here. Uh, we do we will start with uh, Damien. He's talking about episode sixteen where we discuss New Mutants number one. He says I'm still working my way through catching up with you, and we as, and we come to one of my favorites. The choice to centralize Sunspot seemed weird to me at first. I always think of New Mutants as being Danny's book, maybe with Cannonball as a secondary character. I also missed the Bobby Sam stuff in Avengers. I last regularly read Avengers when Kurt Busiek was writing it. Since then, I felt that Avengers was constantly set up as a book you cannot read alone. You need to read ten Avengers books or none. I've chosen none. And you know, it's weird. I just mentioned that when I came in, Kitty was, uh, you know, she was on Excalibur. She was not 
in a book that I was following. She wasn't in a book that I considered a flagship book. Now, when I came into the X fandom, which was around 1991-1992, uh, you know, Danny wasn't much of a factor when I came in. You know, she was actually a bad guy. She was a member of uh, Strife's Mutant Liberation Front. Of course, it would uh, you know eventually be revealed that she was uh, undercover, but I doubt that was the original intention. Um, it's weird how. You know, when you start reading comics, that kind of informs your depictions of what of what or who most personifies a book, right? So, you know, when I would think back to New Mutants, which I never read because I came in after the fact, and all the New Mutants books were very, very pricey in the back issue bin around this time, I'd always associate Sam as being the top guy, you know? And actually going back and reading New Mutants several times over, it, I can definitely say that it's, yeah, it's definitely Danny's book. But, you know, those, fir- those first impressions are really hard to break. Um, my first impression is that New Mutants was Sam's book, so it'll always kind of be Sam's book to me. Uh, now, the Busick Avengers is probably as far as I'd ever go again, should I ever, you know, find an extra half dozen hours a day to devote to reading comics. I feel like that's probably the best sustained Avengers run I've ever read. Um, and best of all, you only had to read one book a month. Now, I think, like, if someone came to me now, and said, how do I start reading Avengers? I'd probably tell them to, like, maybe take up building model boats instead. You know, I I, I wouldn't even know where to tell you to begin. Um, if you're a fan of the movie, you ain't getting anything from the movie in the comics these days. Uh, I, I could not even tell you where to start. I've been, in, I've been in the comics fandom for 30 years, and if I went to the comic store tomorrow to pick up Avengers, I wouldn't know what to buy. So, it's a toughie. Uh, Back to Damien. He says, Right from issue one, page one, I loved Rod Reese's art. He brings so much characterization into the team. You're right to compare him to Sienkiewicz, but I'm actually reminded more of the brief run where Sienkiewicz inked Mary Wilshire. There's a naturalism to the body language which really sells it as a character-driven book. That's a very good call. Very good call. As for those characters, you talk about Rain losing her religion. I expect giving birth to to a king of hell will have a theological impact. Personally, I'd prefer to see her still retain faith, but reject the Reverend Craigs of the world. It would be quite interesting to see Rain, Karma, and Nightcrawler creating some kind of Christian fellowship on Krakoa. Hickman seems interested in how faith and religion affect people, so it might happen. And I tell you what, I totally forgot about Rain giving birth. Uh, was that that was that was during uh, like the later X Factor? Uh, the the probably what was it twenty twenty thirteen ish? You know, it's funny. I, I love that book, but I swear I can't remember a lick of it. Uh, <laughs> is that who is the one? Layla Miller, the girl who knew stuff. Then she was like rapidly aged and like married Jamie. Is she still around? I, I don't know. Guido is not still like Satan or the King of Hell or whatever, is he? I, <laughs> I, who knows? Um, now, I agree. I would like to see Rain maintain her faith, but I think it's interesting to see her actually struggle to do so, you know, like be someone who wants to believe. But, like, know enough or know, or, or know enough to have doubt. Um, I mean, because, like you said, she she did give birth to the King of Hell, and she was just resurrected. So she might actually know what comes in the afterlife. Uh, so that might very well be where we're headed. Uh, back to Damien. He says, My biggest concern with New Mutants was the breaking of the fourth wall. It seems too comedic a device for a team that is so defined by a history of tragedies. 
In the end, I've come to terms with it when I realized it's just us getting to see life through Bobby's eyes. He lives his life like he's in an episode of Magnum P.I. <laughs> and that's... That's very funny. Um, I'm generally not a fan of fourth wall breaking. Um, ever since it became like the comic writer's go-to to foment internet laughs and memes, you know, not not a fan of that kind of thing. But I, I really enjoyed it here. I mean, it made it, it made Roberto seem like a like a bit delusional, right? Like as you said, it's like he's starring in his own ep- like an episode of his own show. At the end of the day, he's giving side glances and winks to nobody at all. And if any of his teammates catch him doing it, he's going to look like an idiot. <laughs> and it's, I mean, I, I hope that happens. I hope somebody is, like, calls him out and is like, who are you looking at? Who are you winking to? Um, now back to Damien. We'll wrap, it, wrap up his message here. He says, I eventually stopped buying this book, New Mutants, and can't really remember why. I'm tempted to buy the missing books when you get to them. And I hope you do. I hope you do, or at least follow along with Marvel Unlimited as we work our way through. I mean, that's a... Uh, I'm hoping that uh, that people, you know, people will start reading uh, some of the stuff they might have dropped, or or maybe they'll uh, just listen to hear me suffer through the books that they did drop and will not go back to. So <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Uh, thank you so much for your message, Damien. It's always very, very appreciated here. Uh, from here, we got a couple more. We got uh, we got a message from uh, our friend Dallas Gibson regarding X Men number two. He says, a great episode. Without spoiling, you're not going to get a team book here in X-Men. This is a series of one-shots. They're planting seeds and nation-building. It took some getting used to, but seven or so issues in for me, X-Men has been my favorite so far. Great stuff ahead. So that's good to know. Because that's a question I did ask when we were uh, reading X-Men number two. I didn't know if this was just going to be like vignettes or if we were going to get a team. You know, um... I'm wondering if, outside of, like, Marauders and New Mutants, are we going to get any teams, right? I mean, X-Force seems like just people slipping into seats. Uh, Fallen Angels, I guess it's too too soon to tell, but uh, what other books we got? Excalibur seems like it could be a slip seat kind of a situation as well. But, uh, no, that's uh, that's good information to have. Um, So I... I can no longer critique it for not being what it's not. <laughs> you know, I, you won't have X-Men number three with me saying, hey, why don't we have a team yet? So now I know. No one's half the battle, and uh, we can move on. So thank you so much, Dallas. And uh, uh, your excitement about it is making me excited to read it. So that's a good thing, for sure. And uh, we'll wrap up with a message from our friend Evan Bevins. He says, I'm still playing catch-up on the podcast, but I'm rereading Hoxpox, and uh, that scene where Storm welcomes back the resurrected X-Men seems a little too culty for Storm and some of the others. I mean, I know this is a cultural shift for them, but dang. So there's another uh, another check in the, wow, that was culty column. Uh, that's That was the impression a lot of us got. And uh, thank you so much for, for sharing that, Evan, and I'm, I'm so happy you're following along. But uh, yeah, that is the... Uh, that seems to be like the big takeaway from that scene for a lot of people, and I'm happy it wasn't just me, because I was, <laughs> I was a little nervous with the, uh, with the tremendous, you know, gargantuan shoe that dropped in that issue that I might might have been focusing on the wrong thing, but uh, I'm happy that other people were maybe a little bit uh, off put by Storm's behavior there. So thank you all so much for uh, for reaching out, sharing, and uh, and for listening, of course. Now, if you'd like to uh, reach out, you could do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. 
You can find show notes and stuff at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. This show has its own page at xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. We got the Facebook group, 90s X-Men. Even though this is not a 90s book, that's the group I got. So that's the group I'm going with. Um, you can find the audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. You'll be able to find all of the audio exploits. That's, of course, X-Lapsed, Moratory Mondays, Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill, Weird Comics History, The Young Animal Gatherums, Chris's on Infinite Earths, all sorts of stuff. Reggie's Comic Stories, all that stuff's uh, archived and ready for your waiting ears. So uh, I think that's where we will uh, draw to a close today. I wish I could have been more positive about this one. Maybe future issues will uh, shock me to my senses. Um... I couldn't help but to be just a little bit annoyed <laughs> at most of the characters in this issue. So we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. We're going to be optimistic here, which is uncharacteristic for me. But uh, we'll try our best. So with all that said, I will thank you all one more time and uh, let you know I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. And uh, welcome to what might be the short... Nah, I'm not even going to say it. Uh, this probably won't be the shortest episode of, uh, of X-Lapsed. Uh, I was wrong both times I said that, so I won't, I'll won't. i try not to say that again. Uh, today, we're going to be discussing Marauders number 3. This is, of course, episode 26. Uh, now, Marauders kind of fell down my charts last, uh, last time out here. The second issues, I put it closer to the bottom than I did the top, I believe, which... It was quite a precipitous drop, considering that I had it teeter-tottering in the number one or number two spot during the uh, the first issues. So this will be an interesting one to see if it uh, you know starts crawling back up or if it you know if it's still something I can't glom onto. But uh, without any further ado, let's hop right in. This is Marauders number three. Uh, had a February 2020 cover date. The story is called The Bishop in Black. Written by Jerry Duggan, we have uh, some new artists here. Pencils by Michelle Bandini, 
uh, inks by Bandini and Elisabetta D'Amico. Easy for me to say. Uh, just like every other name, I guess. Uh, colors by Federico Blee. Letters, VCs Corey Petit. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X, Hickman. Edits, uh, Robinson White, Sobolski. Cover price, $3.99. This one went on sale December 4th, 2019. And we open in flashback land, though it isn't made abundantly clear at the outset. We're at Hellfire Bay, and we see the three colorful royal keeps. We have the Red Keep, you know, where the Red Throne, uh, Blackstone, where Sebastian hangs out, and the White Palace, where we would assume Emma hangs out. And they all have pretty cool designs here. I like the I like the look here of Hellfire Bay. We get a full page of it. It's kind of like a crescent with an island in the middle of it. And uh, on the island is Blackstone. And uh, you have the Red Keep and the White Palace on either end of the crescent, or either tip of the crescent, I should say. Really cool design. I, I like it a lot. Uh, here we meet our narrator, and he is Sebastian Shaw. Now, after waving to some youngins, he steps through a portal and arrives at his destination, which uh, we'll see after our requisite double-page spread of creds and our roll call. So let's meet the folks who will make this issue. We got Sebastian Shaw. We got our old friend GB, Goldball's Egg, uh, Professor X, Pyro, and Shinobi Shaw... Wasn't I just making jokes about him last episode? I thought I was making jokes about Shinobi last episode, but and, and here he is. He's like, uh, you know, one of those things you don't want to say in the mirror in a dark room. Uh, turns out, when we get back to the comics here, Sebastian's destination is that really disgusting hatchery. And before him stands the Five. And of course, the Five is Hope Summers, Egg, Proteus, Tempest, Elixir, and we have Professor X watching everybody uh, do their thing here. So yeah, this is uh, very much a flashback. So this comes before X-Force number one. Now Shaw wants some assurances about their next resurrection. He wants it to be, in his words, complete. Egg decides to point over to their latest resurrectee, Pyro, as proof of their abilities. So yes, this is a flashback. Pyro does not have the Punisher's skull emblazoned on his face just yet. And he's, you know, just a brand new pup. Now Pyro, unfortunately, doesn't appear to be the best specimen at present. It looks like the first thing he did upon being reborn was get drunk. Well, this is an issue of a Marauders, so uh, somebody's got to get drunk, right? And, uh, you know, spoiler alert, we're not seeing much of Kitty this time, so... Somebody else is going to have to tip the bottle, and it'll be Pyro this time. So we see him wobbling around in a wheelchair, waving like a buffoon. He's very, very... I don't know I don't want to say that he's happy to be there, but he's, uh, he's happy to feel no pain, I'm guessing. Suddenly, a golden egg hatches, and from it plops... Well, hello there, Shinobi Shaw. He immediately recognizes his father, who tells him that a lot has changed in a very short period of time. Shinobi asks how he got here, to which Shaw pictures a skeleton with its own hand lodged in its skull lying in a casket. I am going to assume that this happened within the past couple of years because I don't remember a lick of it. I don't remember this happening. Um, Honestly, uh, I don't think... I I didn't think we'd seen much of Shinobi since, like, the upstart days. Uh, So (laughs) anything on this side of the year 2000 is... uh, Will be new to me for Shinobi Shaw. Anyway, Shaw Sebastian says he'll tell Shaw Shinobi everything later on. 
From here, we jump to that culty scene where Storm, you know, usually stands before the throngs and has them chant mutant at her in her direction as they pump their fists. Uh, we don't actually see Storm, though. Uh, despite her being on the cover, she's not in the damn book. Uh, it actually looks like a bald fella is asking for, like, the vocal proof of Shinobi being Shinobi and Shinobi being a mutant. Uh, Shinobi responds by saying, hey, I still want to kill my dad, and that is his proof. Pyro, who still seems quite out of it, raucously cheers for our boy. He is a Shaw and a mutant, damn it, and he's uh, very proud. From here, we follow the Shaws back to Blackstone, where the Elder shares a bit of the skinny on this new Krakoan landscape. Once inside, he sends Shinobi into the next room to change into his, uh, his new clothes, his very red duds. Hmm, okay, so that was his plan. He continues talking. Sebastian loves to talk. Uh, makes me very glad that I'm not voice acting this issue, and uh, you should be glad about that too. <laughs> now, he talks about the Hellfire Corporation and the treaties and the whole shebang, the black market, yada, 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 yada. Yada. The Shaws then step through another portal and arrive in Central Park. Once there, they're hassled, well, Maybe not so much hassled, but they're attended to by the New York Police Department, who have the Central Park Krakoan Gate well guarded just to keep the looky-loos away. Once past the checkpoint, the Shaws are approached by some goofballs in ex-hoodies. Uh, the Shaws use a tandem offense to blow them away. Sebastian explains that many cults have risen of late. Some of them are pro-mutant, some are anti-mutant. The, the pair stop at a fancy eatery to continue their chat. Sebastian talks Frost and how she begged him to come back. Shinobi changes the subject, which I really can't blame him for. I'm sure Sebastian talks about Emma Frost a awful lot. Um, so Shinobi thinks out loud. He's, uh, he wonders whether or not he still wants to kill his father. To which, Sebastian smiles and asks if he thinks he even can. Shinobi says that's something he'll, you know, he'll continue to ponder on his flight to Tokyo. Well, kid, you don't need planes anymore. Because lickety-split, the Shaws emerge from another portal and arrive in Tokyo. Shinobi breaks away to attend to some business and tells his father that they'll revisit their discussion in a couple days. Now, this business Shinobi must attend to involves retrieving his sword. So, yes, another sword. He meets with an old master who's pretty surprised to see him. He assumes Shinobi went into hiding to get out of paying his debts. Either that or he was dead, but, I mean, clearly he's not dead. He's here. He's alive. Uh, from here, an info page from the X-Desk. This page is the uh, first bit of the issue that isn't squarely framed in flashback land. Uh, this one isn't all that interesting at at, as the first, um, but it does include a second text-only page, which is a transcription of a text message between Kitty and Bishop. In it, she asks him to be her red bishop. He turns it down. At the end of the thread, though, Bishop reminds Kitty to, des to destroy her unsecured burner phone and that they're going to need new ones for T, who or whatever T might be. We rejoin comics content, and we are in the present. Shinobi returns from Japan, and he and Sebastian try to move on from their past conflicts. The Elder Shaw says he just witnessed Xavier and Apocalypse shaking hands, which says to him that anything is possible. He also tells his son that uh, their, quote, red ambition didn't quite pay off. Uh, but he still has a, he still got an accolade that he can give his son. It involves the color black, naturally. Though, he does caution Shinobi not to discard his red suit just yet, 
as, you know, anything, anything can happen. Sebastian then takes Shinobi out to the bay to show him his rig. It's the, uh, the Black Bishop's ship. Together, they will bleed the humans dry with their miracle drug trade. Now, before we close out, Shinobi asks if Sebastian knows how he died. The Elder confirms that he does, and we see a scene of Shinobi with his own hand phased through his own head. Which, again, I, I don't remember, so I'm going to assume this was a... probably a very recent thing. Um, probably post-Blue and Gold. You know, X-Men Blue, X-Men Gold. Probably, maybe in that vol- those volumes. Um, now, we wrap up the issue with Sebastian telling Shinobi that... It was the red and white queens that conspired to kill him. So he's uh, he's building allies and making enemies here. Our, our blurb for the next issue of Marauders says that we're going to meet the Red Bishop. Whether or not that's actually Bishop, I guess we'll find out. But our next episode will be discussing Excalibur number three. But how about we talk about this? Let's uh, let's gather our thoughts here and see what we thought of Marauders number three. I guess I can start by saying, and we're back. <laughs> you know, uh, after not really caring for the second issue, I w- I very much enjoyed this one. Um, I'll concede that it was quite odd that we didn't even like get a visual on Call Me Kate. All we got was her text messages. Uh, but with how annoying I found her the last time around, I can't say that I missed her all that much. Um... And, I mean, we still had Pyro kicking around being the drunken goof this time anyway, so, yeah. Uh, I mentioned last episode, um, when we discussed uh, X-Men number three, that uh, the coolest thing about Sebastian Shaw to me growing up was the fact that he had a son named Shinobi. I don't quite remember Shinobi being such a... I don't know, like a a weak ineffectual, (laughs) as he's being portrayed here. Uh, Though... In fairness, much of my Shinobi Shaw references informed by the very early 1990s. So, um, question for the uh, for the for the folks here: H- Has he been kicking around the X universe of late? Um, I, I could have sworn like he did the upstarts thing back in like 91, and then just kind of went away. I mean, I know, I know there was an issue of Volume Two, probably in the 30s, where Archangel and Psylocke went to a Hellfire Club party. He might have been there, but I don't remember. I don't remember much more. Um, I remember thinking he was a pretty cool character for the few times I actually recall seeing him. Uh, though, <laughs> when I, every time I saw him, I wasn't sure if it was him or that Matsu Tsuriaba who was uh, screwing with Wolverine at the time. They had the they all had the same haircut. Um, I think the thing about Shinobi that I liked the most was probably the you know the trappings of the upstarts as a concept. Um, I really feel as though they could have done so much more with the upstarts. If you think about it, I mean, it's such a potentially rich concept. You got, like, a group of rich kids and misfits hunting mutants for points. You know, they're actually killing mutants to, to gain points and beat each other. Imagine if they actually let them kill a couple of notables, you know? Um, I'm trying to think of who they actually killed that might have stuck. And, uh, of course, bef- you know, pre-resurrection. I mean, did Beef ever come back? The Hellion Beef? <laughs> I know they killed him. I know Trevor Fitzroy killed him. Uh, I know they killed Taro, but she came back. Um, they did. They they they. You know, they were pretty pretty well jobbed out. Um, I, I I know back then. You know, when they launched, you know, the revolution, the uh, what what are they the mutant genesis in 1991? They brought John Byrne back. 
You know, he re- he returned to do some scripting for the flagship books. He had Uncanny and Volume 2. He stuck around for like a month or two. But uh, at that point, his primary objective, he, uh, he had an interview in Wizard Magazine. He said that he wanted to have another mutant massacre. Because in his words, get this, he felt that a couple of dozen mutants in the Marvel Universe were too many. So, uh, just you wait, pal. Uh, you know, the upstarts, um, I don't know if folks remember Marvel. If anybody remembers Marvel and uh, isn't cringing right now, uh, Marvel was something that was written by Bill Jemis. It was part of the uh, You Decide initiative, where uh, Peter David, um, Joe Quesada, and uh, Bill Jemis, the president of Marvel at the time, or whatever that, whatever the hell his actual job was, they had a contest where they wanted to outsell each other in, in you know, in, in the sales charts, you know. Uh, Peter David's whole gimmick was he was going to write a good story. Bill Jemis was just going to be eye-poppingly insane. And Joe Quesada was going to launch another Ultimate book. And uh, the book that Jemis put out was called Marvel. And it was basically his soapbox and sounding board to... Bitch and complain about everybody he didn't like Which was a lot of people It turned out What I'm trying to get at here Is the final issue of Marvel Was issue 7 And in it they announced that they were bringing back The concept of epic comics You know the old creator Own line of, of Marvel uh, The creator own line through Marvel back in the 80s You had like you know ElfQuest Grew the Wanderer um, I think Alien Legion You had a whole bunch of stuff whole bunch of uh, The Boz Chronicles A bunch of interesting stuff But uh, they were going to bring it back uh, This is probably right around the turn of the century And in this uh, th- This seventh issue of Marvel Is basically I mean it's not basically it, it exactly is Just what you need to do to pitch for epic comics There was no comic story in this It was all This is what you need to do If you want to have you know, a book uh, for Marvel's new epic line, which lasted like three issues. But uh, I remember really getting this, uh, this like wild hair to do an upstart story. I wanted to pitch an, ups- an upstart story, but uh, I, you know, I, how are you going to do that though? You, you need to kill some people. If you, you know, you need to kill some mutants if you're going to uh, launch that and have it actually mean something. But uh, I, I just thought it would be the coolest thing to have. An Upstarts book Don't even call it Upstarts Make that like the big reveal at the end You know, in the vein of Thunderbolts, you know Just have have like a group of uh, nobodies or misfits Just follow around some B-list mutant And at the end of the first issue they kill it And then they tally their points And it's like, oh boy, the Upstarts are back But I just love the idea I love the idea I wish they did more with it I'd love to see it again I would love to see it back Speaking of back, let's get back to this issue before I uh, <laughs> keep going. Um, I appreciated Sebastian eyeing the Red Throne for his son. And I figure that's kind of multi-layered. You know, we could, we could look at that in a number of different ways here. Uh, first of all, and probably most obvious, Shinobi could potentially be an ally. You know, to outnumber Frost, or at the very least have a little bit more veto power if such a thing exists in Hellfire world. Uh, second... I mean, we see the way that Shinobi died and how that seems to have really gotten under Sebastian's skin. No pun intended. Uh, perhaps this would be like a make good sort of a thing for the Shaws, you know? They can, they can work together and put the past behind them. Whatever the case, it made sense to me. And it made for a pretty good read. 
It made for a really good read. I enjoyed it. Uh, Pyro is a tipsy newborn. Uh, like I said before, it wouldn't be an issue of Marauders unless someone's getting a little buzzed, right? Um, one more time, I hate to say it, but I kind of see the lack of Kitty in this issue as a pro rather than a con. I, I don't know if I'm in the minority. I assume. <laughs> I assume I'm in the minority, but at this moment, I really can't stand her. Uh, hopefully I'll come around to her sooner than later. Um, maybe we just need to, uh, you know, knock some of the, uh, knock some of my rust off before I can, uh, fully get, you know, get into this character and this new take on her. Now from the final blurb in the book, it looks as though we're going to be doing a little bit more team building next issue. We're going to be introducing the Red Bishop and that, that's totally fine with me. I am a complete sucker for world building and, uh, you know, getting pieces into place. So yeah, I can go on that ride. That's a, that's a good thing for me. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Uh, this was definitely, to me, a much stronger issue than last. Um, mostly because I wasn't, you know, cringing the entire time. And just was really, really annoyed. But uh, looking forward to the next issue. I'm happy that this is uh, back on my, on my good side. Or I'm back on its good side. I don't know. But uh, before we... Uh, before we uh, head off for the day, I'll just uh, do one piece of uh, feedback here. This is uh, from Damien, and he's talking about New Mutants number two. He says, I'm continuing to love the podcast. Thanks again for the feedback. I love hearing the stories of people's fandom. I don't think the attempt to own firsts is a particularly Wizard-era thing. I know my early back-issue purchases were all about getting those firsts. My first one my first one was tracking down Uncanny X-Men number 185, which features Storm losing her powers. I sought that issue out because of the footnotes in Uncanny, um, Uncanny X-Men number 220. I spent two pounds on that issue at that point, where new comics were 50p. My second one was, appropriately, Marvel graphic novel number 4, which featured the New Mutants. And, uh, yes, that's some of my very favorite parts of um, being part... As, as much as a vestigial limb as I am to the uh, po- comics podcasting community, I, I still think of myself as sort of kind of a part of it. But uh, some of my favorite parts of interacting with folks is learning, you know, their secret origins, you know, their comic secret origins and uh, finding out what what books resonated most to them, what jumped off, what jumped off the racks to them. Uh, what was their thought process in, you know, what, what, why did they pick certain things to collect? And I love those stories. And that's, uh, that's a lot of what I talk about on, uh, on, on various other programs on this, uh, on this channel. Um, and I'm trying to think about my first, like, you know, back issue, back issues. You know, not like just stuff that was a couple months old that I missed out on, but like things that were more than a few years old. You know, what things I really wanted to track down. And, uh, and, and the what I'm thinking here, I mean, outside of things like ElfQuest, which I started far, far late, you know, I started collecting the Marvel Epic run of ElfQuest in probably 1989, 1990, which was, you know, a few years after it was over. So those were old. But for superheroes, I'm thinking that my first... You know, back issue, back issues were probably the earliest issues of X Factor, uh, mostly because uh, I was shocked when I realized that X Factor was like on issue number eighty when I started reading it. I assumed that it was a brand new book, like X Force and X Men Volume Two. I thought it was going to be like issue, you know, twelve, but it was issue like eighty-one. I was like, where? What was this all about? And then, you know, I did a little bit of uh, 
research and, and research when in 1992 is basically flipping through the back issue bin uh, at all the books you can't afford just to see what ha- what the other covers looked like, right? And uh, I decided that X Factor was going to be like the book I collected because um, it was cheap. It for whatever reason. I mean, I could look at an issue. Um, I I know the reasons, but uh, it was interesting to me that like a book that was only a couple months old in X Force or X Men Volume Two, when it goes in the back issue bin, it was going up from a dollar cover price to four bucks, five bucks in the bins. For whatever reason, X Factor. If I went back to like X Factor number two, it would be in the bin for two dollars. It's like, well, I could do that. You know, I, I that that works for me. And I remember the first time I saw X Factor number one. It was at a mall convention, and uh, a mall convention is basically exactly what it sounds like. I've talked about these on other shows, but uh, like the interior part of the mall, like where you do all your walking and stuff to go to from one store to the other, it would be loaded up with you know folding tables and all the dealers and and retailers from the the area would all come to this mall and they would sell their goods. And the first time I ever saw um, X Factor number one was at a mall con. My my parents were doing food shopping at the Pathmark, and uh, I was uh, I was given you know five bucks and said, hey, you know, go play, you know, <laughs> go walk around the go walk around and buy some stuff. And I found X Factor number one for five dollars, and I thought I was you know the man, you know, buying X Factor number one because. It was, you know, a number one from the 80s, and oh man, it, I was I was hot stuff, you know? <laughs> I thought I was the coolest person. I, I, I bought the thing, I couldn't wait to go to school that, the, next, the next Monday to tell my friends that I got X-Factor number one. Oh man, and uh, I mean, that, that's just the book that I started collecting. And uh, I mean, even like X-Factor number five and number six, the, the cameo and the first appearance of Apocalypse, those were in the bins for two or three bucks. Nobody cared because it was X Factor. It wasn't, you know, Rob Leefield, man. It was, you know, a Simonson. <laughs> it didn't. It didn't so much matter to the uh, to the speculator market. So, those early issues of X Factor were the first ones I tracked down. And uh, the funny thing about that is, considering that X Factor was going to be the the series that I collected, the one that I wanted to get a full run of. It actually turned out being like the last, um, the last series that I got a full run of, and uh, it was X Factor number twenty-four, the one with Archangel on the cover. It's part of the Fall of the Mutants. I saw that in a fifty-cent bin, and I didn't buy it because I thought I had it. And then I went home and I looked on my Excel spreadsheet and realized I didn't have it. And I went back to the same store, drove about a half hour the next day, and it was gone. And uh, I could not track this issue down for the life of me. And uh, everywhere I saw it, it was like 20, 30, 50 bucks. And after seeing it for in a 50 cent bin, I just I couldn't let myself pay more than that for it. Um, it became like this like weird principled thing. And that's another thing I've talked about on other shows. I have very, very strict rules for collecting comics. I'm I'm kind of a I'm kind of a pain in the ass about it. But uh, I couldn't let myself pay, you know, big-time folding money for this issue. And uh, it would take me probably 
five or six years of uh, going anywhere I could that I thought they might have comics. If it was a record store, an antique store, anywhere where they had a, and it, it kills me to say it, a quote-unquote geek section. I hate that word, but I'll say it because people understand what it means. Any store that had one of those sections I would go into in hopes that I would find X-Factor number 24, flea markets, anywhere. And I finally found it at a record store, and I paid $1 for it. <laughs> so I I made out okay, I think. But uh, yeah, those, uh, those stories of collecting and the stories of falling in love with certain um, franchises and runs and, and characters, those are, those are the stories that keep me coming back. You know, that's, that's some of my very favorite stuff. But back to Damien's email. He says, like you, I enjoyed this issue. And again, in case you forgot, we're talking about New Mutants number two. I, I know I went off on a very, very long tangent, but we, we are still talking about New Mutants number two. Uh, I love the group hug you focused on, but my favorite touch was that Rain stays in the hug for two panels more than the other New Mutants. It takes me right back to the fall of the mutants and Sam saying he would adopt Rain as a younger sister when she was distraught after Doug's death. Excellent point. I had to actually open up the book and look because I, I wasn't paying quite as much attention to Rain, um, which is another interesting thing about uh, the generations of fandom because... I guess that might speak to which of these team members feel more like, quote-unquote, mine. I mean, we have this team of New Mutants that has some Generation X members on it, which I always pay more attention to them because those were my cohort. So I think that's a, that's pretty interesting. But I, I do, upon, you know, reflection and seeing that Rain remained, uh, how can you not love that? That's, that's just, that's perfect. Perfect stuff. Um... Back to Damien, he says, Hickman very cleverly centered the rela- on relationships so he could do all of his sci-fi stuff without losing us. Yeah, 100%. Because <laughs> if this was straight sci-fi or year 1000 stuff, uh, no, no, don't want that. Uh, Damien continues, I have to wax lyrical about Rod Reese again. He is a genuine artistic genius. I loved the entire issue. Yeah, Rod Reese is, he's ridiculous. Oh, he's wonderful. Just so great and such a such a perfect fit for this book. Love it, love it. Uh, Damien says, I felt bad hearing you say you were looking forward to reading issue three to see if you like Deathbird for once. I wonder if your reaction to issue three will reflect mine. <laughs> I, I guess we'll see pretty soon. I'm I'm very curious as to your reaction, and I'm also wondering if I need to get my umbrella out. I don't know if any shoes are going to drop next issue, so we'll we'll find out together. Um, your spoiler-free references to X of Swords referenced old Captain Britain. To be honest, most of what I saw in X of Swords used what Claremont built on top of Moore's foundations. Of all things, Fall of the Mutants was a key part of the jigsaw. I would agree that I've clearly missed stuff because of not reading Excalibur, but I was impressed that Hickman and Howard explained a lot of the story so far. This is something we don't see very often in modern Marvel and may just be because the pandemic delayed the story so they thought readers might have forgotten elements. The only thing that confused me was that Pepe Larraz drew Saturnine as identical to how he drew Emma Frost in Hoxpox. The fact that Saturnine exclusively wears white really didn't help. And yes, a few points there. Uh, first, Saturnine. Ugh. <laughs> Saturnine is another one of those characters that kind of bore me. But uh, I'm happy to hear that they do a little bit of a refresher here. Um, one of the things about 
um, House of X Dawn, House of X Powers of X, that I said uh, as we were wrapping it up was that I felt it could be an evergreen uh, in the X-Men library. You know, something that people can come back to even after this era passes, even after the next three or four eras passed. Hox Pox will remain, I believe, as an evergreen. Dawn of X? Maybe not so much. Uh, maybe X of Swords, if they are doing stuff where they are refreshing or jogging our memories a bit, perhaps that speaks to them looking at it as potentially an evergreen. Um, it might be too long to be an evergreen at like, you know, 300 parts, but I, I mean, baby steps. Maybe that's what they're trying to do. Um, or, of course, it could just be the pandemic. Um, I remember putting in a pre-order for some of the early uh, X of Swords stuff. Boy, very, very long time ago. And uh, everything got pushed, as you know, as everything did. But uh, I'm happy to hear that they do catch us up. Um, because uh, I'm dense. I'm very dense. So <laughs> if, they, if, if any help they give me, I will take. But uh, I am interested to see... Um, you know, fall of the mutants. I mean, I, I, that, I think that could be an interesting thing to uh, touch on and further instills that in this post hoxpox landscape that everything actually happened, which makes me happy. Uh, back to Damien. He says, I bet you're really enjoying rereading the Marvel UK Captain Britain. It's fascinating to see the development of Moore and Davis in those first stories. Moore moves from a Claremont copyist to a unique voice, and Davis goes from sketchy to accomplished in a very short period of time. I hope you do have time to produce something for us about these books. You're right to focus on the effectiveness of the Fury storyline. The creeping fear and dread the two Allens evoke still gets me every time I read it. Masterful. And yes, oh boy, um, yeah, the Fury is scary. I love it. I love it. And, um... I am putting something together. Uh, I've got a few things that I'm trying to cook up. I'm trying to do something of a new fall season for this channel. Um, you know, X-Lapsed isn't going anywhere. That'll still be as often as I can do it. Um, and actually, with this very episode here, um, for folks who were listening live or on the day it came out, uh, this episode hits on September 30th, which marks one complete calendar month of daily podcasting here at the channel. Uh, we started uh, with House of X number one on September 1st, so uh, it was a test. It was a personal test to see if I could do it, and I'm, I'm happy to say I could. And, and it's, uh, I don't know if it's something to be terribly proud of, but I'm happy I did it. <laughs> so, uh, But X-Lapsed will, uh, will definitely loom large here at the channel, but there are other projects in the, uh, in the works. Um, and as I mentioned, I believe, last episode, uh, I am working on putting together the Books Club with, uh, with some friends. And... Uh, Fallen Angels. I actually tracked it down in my uh, my guest bedroom, which looks like it kind of looks like a, like a like a Tetris board threw up. It's just boxes every which way, and <laughs> it's very very hard to navigate. Um, it's one of those things where I feel like I'm walking with like a, I'm walking on a minefield with those tennis racket shoes. You know, I'm always afraid I'm going to step on something. But I did manage to track down my run of Fallen Angels from the '80s. So we're going to put that together for a books club. Um, got a bunch more stuff in the works, and uh, I think it's going to be a pretty exciting time for the channel. Uh, a lot of a lot of fun stuff planned, and uh, we'll see how it goes. But. Uh, I think that's where we'll put a pin in it today. Um, I want to thank Damien for reaching out. I want to thank, every, thank everyone for listening and reaching out. And uh, 
If you'd like to get a hold of me, you can do so at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. Um, I'm also reactivating, or maybe not reactivating, but I'm actually just starting to use again the Cosmic Treadmill uh, Twitter. That's Cosmic T-Mill on Twitter, and that's basically going to be used for the archives. I'm trying to keep keep some of the old audio in circulation and uh, have it set to put out a few a few tweets a day to just, you know, maybe maybe meet some people that we didn't know, maybe introduce some folks to some stuff we talked about. Uh, today, uh, I, that you decide, the Marvel You Decide stunt, I, I, I retweeted that there, so... A lot of fun stuff that'll be coming out through there. Um, you can find the show notes and all the stuff at chrisoninfiniteearths.com. The Xlapsed page is xlapsed.chrisoninfiniteearths.com. You can find us on Facebook at 90s X Men. And of course, the full audio archives are at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Uh, one more huge thank you to everybody. Uh, thank you for helping me get through September 2020 every single day. Um, it really, really means a lot to me. It's hard to even. Put it into words, um, and I know that might sound sarcastic, but I assure you it's not. Uh, thank you all. It is most appreciated. It means the world to me. Um, but until next time, I will uh, talk to you all again real soon. See ya. This is Chris. Welcome to episode 31 of X Lapsed, and uh, I come to you today hot and bothered, but uh, literally hot and bothered. Uh, as uh, many of you know, I live in sunny Arizona, and uh, despite the fact that we are currently in October, it's still over 100 degrees Fahrenheit out here, and uh, I tell you what, I'm done with it. <laughs> I'm really, really, really tired of the heat, so... Uh, Let's let's talk about X Men. <laughs> let's talk about the X Men here, because uh, I'm staring at my window right now, and uh, all I see is hot. So let's just get into the book here. 
We are entering into the uh, Dawn of X number fours, so we are going to start with Marauders number four. This one out of February 2020 cover date. The story is called The Red Bishop. Written by Jerry Duggan with art by Lucas Wernick. Colors Federico Blee. Letters VCs Corey Petit. Designs Tom Muller. Head of X Hickman. Edits Robinson White Sabolski. Cover price $3.99. This one went on sale December 18th, 2019. Now we open with our, our usual three pages of non-comics. We got our roll call, so let's go through it. We've got Kate Pride, and I'm only calling her Kate because they, they make sure to call her that here. Uh, Bishop, Pyro, Storm, and Iceman. Then we get our credits. Then we get an info page. So uh, I guess we got four non-comic pages to start. It really makes me wonder, just like, what in the hell would a new reader do here? You know, you buy a comic book, you spend $4 on a comic book. You're, you're a new reader, you're X-curious, right? And you're coming in, and it takes you up to page 5 to get the comics. I, I guess, on the bright side, it's probably a good thing that there aren't too many new readers out there. Maybe thanks to stuff like this, I don't know. So, the info page we get makes mention of Jumbo Carnation being back among the living, which pays off on an earlier sinister secret. I believe it was uh, one of the first ten that we got during during Hoxpox itself. Then, imagine this, we actually get comics. So let's talk about comics. Now, we're somewhere in Brazil, where a quartet of young mutants are watching as three ships approach the shore. From the one in the middle, they can hear someone cranking out the other Journey song people know, so not, not Don't Stop Believing, the other one. Uh, it's Pyro in, in the uh, Steve Perry role, and he and Lockheed are even doing a full-on fire and light show to accompany his vocals. The kids, realizing they are now being saved by the Marauders, they rush toward the beach. They are unfortunately stopped by a dude in a fatigue jumper and shades. This is a paragon of the uh, Brazilian army or Brazilian rent-a-merc legion, I don't know. He warns them not to step off the beach, as that would be treasonous. And the pen penalty for treason is, of course, death. Storm, however, begs to differ. She claims that these children are citizens of Krakoa by birthright, and says if they so choose, they will return home with her. Our man Paragon thinks Storm's interjection is rather adorable, and more or less begs her to fight him. And so, she strikes him with lightning. Twice which uh, eh, seems kind of unstorm-like to me. <laughs> maybe, she's been, uh, maybe she's been drinking the kitty juice. Eh. You know, having that listed as a bullet point, I didn't expect it to sound quite so vulgar. I apologize. Um, I apologize. Uh, let's move on. Uh, now, they leave the Merc in a... You know, he's smoking in a ditch. <laughs> but uh, we do hear him gurgle the word, Ugh! Which lets us know that Storm didn't break that first demandment of Krakoa. They didn't kill him. Uh, the Marauders welcome the Tots to the ship, and it looks as though the uh, standout, if we can even call him that, of this group is a green kid called Fish. Uh, Pyro offers them liquor, and Iceman downloads Krakoan into their noggins, as they, uh, and away they go. We shift scenes back to Taipei, where Kitty and Bishop are scoping out a building. We get a reminder here that Kitty's unable to step through the Krakoan gateways with the added information that she's never learned the Krakoan language. You see, Bishop gives her, like, a schematic of the place they're trying to break into, and it's written in Krakoan. Kitty doesn't know what the hell it says. There you go. Now, she and Bishop parachute down from a skyscraper, and as they fall, Kitty tries to sell our man on becoming her Red Bishop. He's still not fond of the idea. 
Our pair phase through the roof of a nearby building and arrive at the penthouse home of Lim and Chen Zhao. Now, Chen Zhao, if you recall, and you might not, because this was a few issues ago, this was the woman in the first issue who was holding rallies and claiming that her husband vanished after touching a Krakoan gateway. I assumed that this meant that this fellow might have been a mutant, and we're about to find out that I was completely wrong. Kitty and Bishop have a poke around the lavish penthouse home, with the former dis- depositing a piece of genuine ivory into the wall. You see, the Zows are a-holes, so we got to hammer that point home as unsubtly as possible. Uh, Bishop's intel revealed that there's a panic room here, and so our pair phase through the wall to find it. And there, they find Lim Zhao. This dude is incredibly happy to see Shadowcat and Bishop, and... Uh, I can't remember the last time we saw the name Shadowcat in print, though, to be honest, I don't always pay the best attention, so it could have been the last issue for all I know. It feels like it's been a while, though. Now, this fella, your limb, he wants our heroes to take him back to Krakoa with them. Kitty doesn't quite understand what's going on. Bishop reveals that this goober is part of something called the Order of X, and that's a mutant-worshipping cult. I believe we saw the Shaws deal with a gaggle of them in Central Park last issue. Now, they're not so sure what to do with this fellow. Like, they really can't just leave him here, but at the same time, they can't really bring him back to Krakoa with them. This discussion is cut short, however, by the arrival of a couple of Lady Deathstrikes, who uh, Kitty and Bishop proceed to fight for a handful of mostly grunt-filled pages. It does look like poor Kitty gets her nose broken again here, though. Now, she ups the ante on her brutality here, swatting at one of the ladies' death strike with a pillow, phasing it upon impact, and then unfazing it while it's lodged in the baddie's body. Bishop then blasts the hell out of the other one, and our heroes are good to go. They grab Lim and head out out to Chen's current anti-mutant rally, and uh, she's being pretty much exactly what you'd expect her to be. They're, They're not being very subtle with her hatred. She's a bit gobsmacked, however, when Kitty, Bishop, and Lim interrupt the proceedings. Kitty gets on stage, reveals the scam, and deposits poor delusional Lim back into the care of his loving wife. Now, Lim is kind of a looney tune here. He's just, like, waving to the crowd while the, they pelt the pair with raucous booze. Uh, it's actually almost endearing how out, of, out to lunch this guy is. It's, it's pretty funny. Now, as Kitty and Bishop phase off panel, the former hard sells the latter on becoming the Red Bishop again. He still ain't feeling it, but it would seem as though he's starting to come around. He asks about having to wear red, to which Kitty informs him that old Jumbo Carnation is already working on their gear. So I guess this means that Kitty won't be wearing that that really awful Captain Morgan outfit we saw her in a couple issues ago. Hopefully. Uh, From here, info page. It's some emails exchanged between Bishop and Beast, and uh, to be completely honest, it might just be the most likable Beast has been portrayed in a decade. Now, Bishop informs Hank about the ladies' death strike and refers to them as post-humans. So, if I'm remembering right, they're the second and third post-humans we've seen in Dawn of X to this point. Uh, We had uh, that one from The Vault back in X-Men number one. Uh, I don't think we've seen any since, unless I'm mistaken. I very well might be. Uh, Bishop also complains to Hank that, uh, you know, Kitty's still trying to coerce him into becoming the Red Bishop. Beast tells him, hey, you know what? You ought to consider it, because it could prove useful down the line. You know, the Hellfire Club, Corporation, whatever. They're not known for their transparency, so maybe having a fella on the inside would be the best way to go. 
From here, we jump back to comics and we wrap up the issue. We rejoin Chen, who has just arrived in Madripoor for an important meeting. You see, she was humiliated and ruined by the mutants, and now she wants revenge. And so, she's decided to throw in with Cade Kilgore in the Junior Hellfire Club. Wow. I haven't seen or even thought about these characters in, like, God, near a decade. So, <laughs> that's interesting. And that's, uh, that's where, we, uh, where we wrap up. Uh, we wrap up on a pretty, uh, pretty interesting and pretty neat uh, note there with uh, the Junior Hellfire kids there. I, I, I like that. Uh, next up, we'll be talking about Excalibur number four, but uh, let's talk about what we just read. Now, I like this issue a lot. I thought this was a really, really fun story. Um, I mean, let's let's talk about Kitty and Bishop. I thought this was a really fun team up. Uh, these are a couple of characters that I feel like I haven't seen together working together like ever, you know. And uh, I think it worked really well. I, I like Bishop playing kind of the straight man, and Kitty, you know, kind of being a bit petulant and uh, beggy, trying to get him to uh, sign on the dotted line to be her red bishop. Um, then the dialogue here, I mean, they felt like natural pals, and the dialogue was very organic, which is a nice change of pace from some of the discourse in the other X-Books, which I've commented has felt rather forced and rather, rather, you know, contrived, um, a lot of just means to an end sort of stuff, right? Where this felt, this felt legit, and I liked it. Um, I liked... Another thing I liked was that Kitty was not portrayed as being sloppy drunk during this issue. And uh, that's not to say I have a problem with people drinking or anything. I'm not a drinker personally outside of the the one girl drink I allow myself every year on the wedding anniversary. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, the wife and I, in normal, that is to say non-2020 years, we celebrate our anniversary every year at uh, a place called the Salish Lodge in uh, Snoqualmie, Washington. Which... For folks familiar with Twin Peaks, you might know better as the Great Northern. It's the uh, the hotel from the uh, opening credits of Twin Peaks. We're pretty big fans, and uh, and the lodge and the waterfall and the, and the town are, are beautiful. So it's a it's a win win win. Um, I'll get my uh, my one alcoholic beverage of the year there, which is something called the Dale Cooper. It uh, it's kind of citrusy. It's 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 a girl drink. Uh, and again, if you're familiar with Twin Peaks, that name will probably ring a bell. Uh, usually I'll take a sip, then I'll turn into everyone's Irish uncle. You know, bright red nose, bright red cheeks, and, and all smiles. Just doesn't take me much. My tolerance is, is very, 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 very low. Anywho, that said, I don't have a problem with people drinking. Uh, but the way Kitty is portrayed, it, I don't know, it makes me think of like that one friend in, our, in everybody's circle who massages every conversation to include a mention about how they like to smoke pot. I, th- I think we all have that one pe- one friend, you know, and uh, it just it, like they insist upon their uh, their addiction or whatever it is that they do, and it's like, okay, we get the point, we get the point. Stop hitting us over the head with it. We get it. You like to do that. Cool. Whatever. <laughs> and it just makes me. It reminds me of a lot of how Kitty's been written for the first two issues of the series. So, seeing her here in issue four, being more heroic and less. Wildly annoying it was a very nice thing to see. Um, I really enjoyed her trying to kind of needle Bishop into the position of uh, the Red Bishop for the Help Fire Corporation. Just really good stuff all around. I I can't say a bad thing about it. I enjoyed it. 
Uh, the Taipei mission was well done. I liked Lim being part of the X-Cult, as well as his wife's comeuppance. Um, it was also cool seeing a couple of post-humans. I- I'd almost forgotten about them, so it was neat to get a reminder that these sort of characters, uh, you know, if Hox Pox is to come to pass the, you know, the far-flung futures, they're eventually going to loom large, right? Uh, having a pair of ladies death strike was an interesting choice. Um, you know, not exactly an A-lister, but one that's recognizable on site. I thought that was pretty cool. Um, reintroducing the Junior Hellfire kids, I, I like that too. That was a neat choice. Um, as I mentioned, I probably haven't thought about them in... Probably since 2011, 2012 maybe. Because if I'm remembering right, I think they hit around the time of Schism. And I think they may have had an arc or two in the Wolverine and the X-Men series that spun out of uh, Schism. I do remember them being fun foils uh, for you know Wolverine, and I, I think Quentin Quire was part of those stories. And, and hopefully they will be again. You know, Hopefully they will be again here in uh, Marauders moving forward. Um... I think the only thing, if we can even call it a complaint, uh, the only thing that I really didn't dig about this issue was the way Storm was portrayed. I don't remember her being quite so liberal with her use of power. Um, I mean, this wasn't like she was facing down an army. This was just one idiot, and she hit him with lightning twice. (laughs) It just feels like a literally overkill, right? I mean, um... They, they had to make sure they put a panel in there of the dude gurgling to make sure we knew he didn't die, but, I mean, this dude got pelted pretty hard, and uh, Storm did it really without any thought. It wasn't like a last resort sort of thing. It's just like, okay, well, you know, you step to me, and I'm going to hit you with lightning. So, I don't know. Not my favorite take on Storm, though. I will say that Storm's been portrayal here has been better than I've seen her in many, many years, so... I guess you take the good, you take the bad. Or you take the stuff you dig, and you take the stuff you don't dig quite as much. Uh, Overall, though, I had a pretty good time with this. Um, You know, beyond happy that I'm completely back on board with this title, uh, because after issue two, which I came down kind of middling on, I was a little bit worried. I thought I was going to fall on the minority side of just being someone who tolerated this book. But, uh... But no, this was a lot of fun. I'm happy to be back. Um, I'm happy that I'm enjoying this, and I'm happy that I'm looking forward to the next issue. So that's a uh, that's what we in the biz call uh, you know a win. <laughs> I'm a little bit less happy that next episode we'll be looking at Excalibur, but and all I've seen so far is the cover, which has Betsy fighting what looks to be the Shogo Dragon. Uh, we'll we'll see, we'll see. <laughs> I'm not usually one that hopes that the cover doesn't depict what happens in the issue, but I'm kind of hoping that the cover doesn't depict what happens in the issue. We'll be optimistic. We will. Uh, we will be optimistic as always. We will try to uh, try to keep it on the bright side. But uh, that's about all I have to say about this issue. But uh, before I let you go, let's uh, let's touch in with some uh, the feedback from the mailbag here. I'll start with Damien. This is regarding New Mutants number three. And New Mutants number three was tonally very, very different from New Mutants number one and two. Uh, totally different story, totally different characters, just a totally different thing. So Damien says, I will never understand why the two storylines of New Mutants were not released as two separate series. They really are unrelated. In itself, it's not the worst X story, but I wanted to see more of the team from the first two issues. 
Yeah, such a bizarre shift here. Um, it makes very little sense why they would cut into the Shi'ar story with this two-parter. Um, the only thing I could maybe guess is that maybe Hickman needed more time. I, I, I don't know the man. <laughs> and I am, I am very... Uh, I'm like tangentially into the you know the comics news world here, so I don't know a whole heck of a lot that's going on outside of the you know the handful of books that I'm reading. So I don't know what what all he's writing outside of his ex commitments, but uh, I'm guessing he's probably a pretty busy dude. Um, maybe this new this new mutants arc had a one month or two issue buffer built in to buy him some time, and of course that is assuming that this side story all wraps up next issue. I, I guess they decided they'll just pass the savings on to us poor defenseless readers. Um, and you're right, it's not the worst story. It just felt a bit too much like a fill-in for my tastes. It's almost as though they had writers put together some very basic post hoxpox style stories and then just stuffed them in a drawer until they were needed. You know, it's like, okay, this is the new status quo. Write us some stories and we'll use them if we have to. And uh, this is one of them. <laughs> That's how it feels. I am completely talking out of my ass here. Uh, this could be the plan all along. Maybe the two stories are going to converge in some way. Couldn't tell you. I don't know. But, uh, yeah, this was a weird one. Very, very weird. Back to Damien, he says, Interesting to hear your reaction to the villains. They really do come across as generic anti-mutants. As I recall, the next issue tries to make them more important and kind of explains why they have power-dampening weapons, but I remember remaining underwhelmed. And, uh... Underwhelming is probably the most apt descriptor here, um, because, like we said, it's not a bad story. It's just an unspectacular story. Uh, it would probably take something very spectacular to happen to change my mind on the arc and make it make it feel like it was something worthwhile. But uh, we'll see. Uh, Damien continues. In relation to your reaction to my DC origin story, you're wrong. Millennium was the perfect jumping-on point. You stated that nothing really happens in the story, and this allows them the time to show off who and what makes up the DC universe at the time. There was also a fantastic article by assistant editor Mark Wade in issue 2 in which he talks about the history of DC crossovers. This was perfect for a newcomer, as I was instantly brought up to date in an era where internet research would have been impossible. And as much as I hate Millennium, and I do hate Millennium, I have this weird begrudging respect for what it set out to do, as it pertains to including as much of the then-DC universe into its web as possible. I mean, even characters who didn't have their own titles at the time were kind of tied into the ascension of the New Guardians uh, in, in issue 8 of Millennium. And uh, and I've covered that Wade bit myself, both uh, in pod and blog form, and uh, that might just be the highlight of the entire run uh, to me. Uh, Damien continues, Of course, when I met Steve Englehart at a comic convention and asked him to sign my first DC comic, he apologized for it being, for it being impenetrable. So the writer of the comic is on your side. And, uh, hey, it's not often I think I'd find myself agreeing with Mr. Englehart, but there you go. Um, <laughs> speaking of impenetrable, um, I'm not really one to talk. Uh, I've mentioned here and again that uh, about my DC Comics origin story, you know. I started reading DC Comics with The Death of Superman in 1992-1993, and then I left. I left after that story. I left actually before The Reign of the Superman wrapped up because I found myself not caring. Um, I'd pop in every now and again, you know, Electric Blue was something I wanted to see, some Nightfall stuff I wanted to see, uh, Emerald Twilight I wanted to see. So I popped in every now and again, but actually came back to DC in earnest 
around the time of Batman No Man's Land. You know, that's where I was like, okay, I'm going to take a look on the other side of the table. I had way too much money burning a hole in my pocket. And uh, a lot of the DC stuff just looked cool. So it's like, okay, I'm going to finally do this. I'm going to finally start adding these these books to my, uh, to my pull list, you know. So for the first time ever, I was a... And you know, an ingrained DC Comics reader, and uh, and what was the first DC trade paperback I bought? Crisis. <laughs> I knew nothing about DC Comics, but I bought and I read Crisis on Infinite Earths. I think it was like a forty dollar trade, which was a lot of money then, a lot of money now. Um, and despite not knowing about three quarters of the characters or really anything about pre-crisis DC Comics history. I didn't know jack about the Silver Age, Bronze Age. Didn't know anything. But I bought it, and I read it, <laughs> and and I tried my best. Uh, I've read it several times since, and Reggie and I actually have, you know, 13 or 14 hours of crisis coverage on the channel here. But uh, that was, uh, you know, I can't really speak when it comes to impenetrable stories. Um uh, Damien wraps up with, I covered Millennium in my first episode of my podcast, Should I Love This Comic? It's a little difficult to listen to as it, my, it was my first attempt, but I would recommend your listeners at least look up the gallery page at my website, shouldilovethis.blogspot.com, where I shared that article. And uh, yeah, Millennium, as, as much as I disliked it, um, is one of... Because uh, I've covered it uh, many different ways myself, too. And... Uh, it's one of the living and breathing sections of the blog, um, which is to say the posts are like never done because I'm constantly, or not constantly, but I'm regularly finding new things to add, new commentary, new ephemera, um, new, you know, promotional material. And I will update my millennium posts to include them. I don't know why millennium is like the one DC crossover that I picked to do this with, because I, like I said, I hate it. <laughs> I think it's really bad. But uh, I, for some reason, it's just I, I've kind of pigeonholed myself to do as much Millennium-based uh, <laughs> research as possible. I can't explain it. Uh, the post for Millennium number eight at Chris's Uneven Earth is chock full of extras. If anybody wants to check that out. Um, and I'll also add the link to Damien's coverage in the show notes uh, for folks to check out. Uh, his gallery as well and his program but thank you so much for reaching out there i always look forward to your messages and uh i was especially looking forward to seeing your reaction to my reaction to the wildly strange new mutants number three so that was very cool thank you so much uh now our other piece of feedback this time out will be from our friend al sedano uh regarding powers of x number three so he's uh he's still very early in the run here and uh, one thing about Al, uh, he and I have a uh, have a project that we've got in the works that uh, we think some folks out there might find legion. I mean, I mean, legendary. Um, we'll, we'll we'll put a pin in that, but it will be a part of the the late new fall season here at the Chris and Reggie Channel. So I hope hope folks uh, might smell what I'm cooking here. So we'll see how that goes. But uh, Al's message here starts with, Sorry, been a busy been busy the last few days, but here are my thoughts after listening to episode 5 and reading Powers of X number 3. First of all, I love nihilistic suicide run Zorn. This is not the kind of nihilism I'm used to seeing. Normally it's Thanos, 
And while I do love that character, he's not great at providing the giggles. Zorn, however, is like, what if Iceman was a nihilist? And yeah, this take on Zorn was super cool. Um, I really wasn't expecting to be quite as taken with these X-Men of the Year 100, but they were just a ton of fun. Um, And as I mentioned during the coverage here, I actually felt the loss when they went away, which really speaks to the talents of, uh, of Jonathan Hickman here to take these, uh, these chimeras, you know, these ciphers, you know, and just make them uh, just, just so damn endearing and uh, so much fun to read. Al continues, Also, I didn't realize that wasn't Magneto. I was wondering why the change to the green outfit, but now that makes sense. And yeah, totally, I wasn't sure either until it was made clear that he was a chimera. Um, I thought that was a pretty neat reveal. Uh, uh, the whole Chimera concept is pretty neat And I wonder I mean, we have a post-human here today And uh, I think that they're gonna, they're gonna I think they're gonna be playing kind of in concert um, That might have been made perfectly clear And I'm just too dense to realize it But I, I think that it's uh, I think that it'll, it'll all come together And I'm looking forward to seeing that happen uh, back to Allie says, So, Krakoa is a merger of Krakoa and Cypher. Interesting that one of the that the one considered the weakest apparently lasts longer than the rest of the New Mutants, as well as most of the X-Men. And yeah, for sure. Um, I, I, I still liked calling him Swamp Thing for the few times we saw him, but uh, <laughs> yeah, Cypher did outlast his, uh, his cohort, right? And I feel like Cypher has kind of taken that... Uh, I don't know if this will make sense uh, to anyone but me. But I feel like he's taken that Aquaman role, you know? Like, the character that everyone assumes is a joke. You know, you get the, like, the durr he talks to fish sort of thing, but then the writers kind of bend over backwards to legitimize him. Uh, maybe I'm thinking too hard about it. I, or maybe I've just heard too many, you know, John Byrne civilians talk about Aquaman, and I get the durr he talks to fish a lot. Uh, maybe I'm just annoyed that every Aquaman story anymore seems to be preceded by some commentary about how he's not a joke anymore. And yet, every single writer who handles the character will cram at least one one durher he talks to fish remarks into their work. I don't know. But I, I feel like Cypher, you know, is a silly character to have on your front lines. And uh, writers, ever since he's returned from the dead, have been really, really bending over backwards to make him feel more legit. I think Hickman's got him in a really good spot um, in, you know, in being the uh, the translator or the liaison between the X-Men and Krakoa. I think that's a really good role for him and plays to his strengths while, you know, hiding all of his weaknesses. Uh, back to Al, he says, This issue, considering how many of them die, is, was quite amusing. Besides Zorn, we also get more from the new, new snarky and sarcastic Nimrod. It's ironic that at this point in the future, the machine is more human than most humans seem to be. And yeah, I totally love this take on Nimrod. And you're spot on here. Um, somehow his behavior feels the most human out of anyone in this point in time. But it's just so damn creepy, isn't it? I, I think that this is... This is like the scariest I've seen a character in a very long time. And all he's doing is acting normal. <laughs> you know, you have this big, you know, pink marshmallow peep who's being all sassy and sarcastic. A really, really fun take on Nimrod. I, I liked it a lot. Um... Back to Ali says, one mistake, you, one mistake it looks like you made. Uh, when reading the timeline for Mora the Ninth, you missed some of the events listed on the bottom of that timeline. Year 49 was when mutants overrun Asia established the capital cities of Akaba, Kir, and Tian. Since it seemed like you were confused as to what they were when it says they were destroyed in year 56. So, yeah, mea culpa. You're totally right. I actually uh, flipped through the issue hoping 
that I'd get a get-out-of-jail-free card here, and maybe maybe they only included that little tidbit in the collected edition, but not the original issue. But no, no, they did, and I just missed it. <laughs> so <laughs> I'm sorry about that. It uh, it happens from time to time. I've done that. Um, now, Al wraps up his email here. That's all this time, except to add that I enjoyed Jeremiah as a guest and hope he comes back at some point. And uh, thank you. I hope so, too. I actually just uh, chatted him up today, and he, uh, he decided he's going to order... The uh, Dawn of X anthologies So uh, you never know We might see him here again pretty soon uh, As he gets those and starts reading through them And also, you know, while on that subject It's been a few weeks since I've extended any invitations So that goes for anybody If uh, if anybody would like to come on and chat with me About a Dawn of X issue As well as maybe your life and times As an X fan, please reach out um, uh, You know, weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com Or Ace Comics on Twitter uh, I'd love to hear from folks. I'd love to have uh, more people on to uh, to talk about this, you know, very interesting time in X history, as well as learn a little bit more about your times in X history. You know, I, that's part of the stuff that I love the best about this is sharing stories about how we discovered certain properties, uh, why we stayed, why we stuck with some, why we left sometimes, why we came back. I just. Uh, I don't know how interesting a lot of people find that, but I find it very, very interesting. So, like I said, if anybody wants to come on and chat, definitely reach out. Reach out, please. Um, And, you know, if you want to just reach out and, uh, you know, send me a letter or talk about how much you love and or hate the program, please do so. (laughs) That's at, uh, again, at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You could find the show notes and all the stuff, including... A whole lot of words about Millennium over at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. You can find the Xlapsed subdomain at xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearth.com. You can find us on Facebook at 90sxmen. You can find us on Tumblr at Xlapsed. I don't know exactly how to find it on Tumblr. I will include the link in the show notes because I, I don't know what it is off the top of my head. Um, you can find the audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com Where you'll be able to find thousands of hours worth of audio entertainment Or audio, uh, I don't know, just audio, I guess <laughs> I don't want to overstep and call it entertainment It is, but it is audio, that is a fact um, But I think that's where we'll leave it today One more huge thank you to everyone for uh, for hanging out and sharing your time with me As we enter the issue fours We're... Uh, we're making a dent here. We're by the end of the fours, we'll be what about a third of the way through these runs. So that's pretty exciting. Um, I didn't know that this series would uh, would quite have quite the lasting power that it has. So, and uh, I owe all of that to uh, to you all. So thank you so so much. Um, but I think that's where we'll put a pin in it. So until next time, I will uh, talk to you again real soon. See ya.
Hey, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 37 of X-Last, where we're going to be kicking off the Dawn of X Wave 1 number 5s. And we're doing so with, uh, well, the book of the week for the past several weeks. Uh, we're doing it with Marauders number 5. Now, this had a March 2020 cover date. The story is called The Time to Sew, written by Jerry Duggan, with art by Matteo Lali and Lucas Warnick. Colors, Federico Blee. Letters, VCs, Corey Petit. Designs, Tom Muller. Head of X, Hickman. Edits, Robinson White Sobolski. Cover price, $3.99 American, and went on sale January 1st, 2020. Now we open in the Arctic with uh, Iceman and Christian Frost, and a little bit of a lecture on climate change, which I know might be a divisive topic for some. And in the interest of keeping this program as apolitical as humanly possible, we'll just move on. Now, once done, they head back to Krakoa on Christian's submarine, the Mercury, while exchanging dialogue that might be intended as flirty or flirtatious? I'm not sure. Uh, Christian asks Bobby to leave the Marauders and join him on his travels on the, uh, on the Mercury. He also makes the cardinal sin of referring to Kate as Kitty, which Bobby is quick to correct him with a, uh, you know, call her Kate. And no matter how many times you ask and how politely you do so... I'm probably not going to do it. From here, we go into our credits and roll call. We've got Call Me Kate, Iceman, Pyro, Bishop, Storm, Christian Frost, Emma Frost, and Sebastian Shaw. We rejoin Comics Action in uh, Hellfire Bay, where the King and Queens of the Hellfire uh, Trading Corporation are uh, discussing logistics and whatnot. Christian arrives back mid-meeting, and it looks like things are already getting contentious. Now, you see that Shaw wants Kitty and her crew to do this pickup in Madripoor, because his black bishop, Shinobi Shaw, will be otherwise engaged in South Africa. He refers to this Madripoor gig as a simple milk run, just routine, run-of-the-mill, no big deal, and then says it's women's work, which, come on, dude, you're outnumbered here, don't, don't do that. Uh, Kitty says, hey, let's put it to a vote, and, well, duh, Shaw gets outvoted by the queens. Shinobi Shaw looks on, and he's almost impressed at how easily Kitty and Emma are able to get under his father's skin. From here, we shift to moments later in Kitty's base of operations, known as the Red Keep. It's worth noting that Emma had time to either get a haircut or change her wig in the time it took to get there. And, oh, have I mentioned that Kitty's been drinking the whole time so far? Because, uh, well, she has, t she has been, and uh, she continues to here, because uh, I guess mutant drinking is, uh, is cool, or... However, whatever cool way you spell cool, that isn't cool. Uh, anywho, they're talking. Emma downloads Krakoan into Kitty's head, so now she can understand it. And they actually have a really good chat here. Uh, they both admit to being scared of the Krakoan uh, resurrection process, um, but for different reasons. Uh, one, one reason is kind of serious, the other reason is a little silly. Now, Kitty's scared that it just plain won't work for her. You know, if you're following along, you know she has not been granted access to the gateways. 
So maybe Krakoa doesn't see her as, you know, part of the family. So she's afraid if she dies, it's a one-way trip. Emma, she's not afraid of not coming back. She's just afraid of which nose she'll wake up with. Wonk, wonk, wonk. Now, they talk for a bit about how different their lives might have been had Kitty chosen the Massachusetts Academy instead of Xavier's way back in the long ago, which is a super cool callback. I love that. And it's actually not something I'd even considered. Um, Emma suggests that uh, she probably would have destroyed Kitty back in the day. Uh, they wrap up their meeting, and they head out to meet with some new Krakoan refugees and to get them out of their horrid human clothes. Um, yeah, the sass here is a little bit strong. I think I think even, like, current-year Mr. Sinister might have thought this was overkill. He's like, hey, you know, cool it, guys. This is a bit much. So, we're with these new refugees. We're meeting, we're greeting, but it's short-lived. Pyro runs in to report that the upstart is locked in battle in Madripoor Bay. First of all, the upstart. Oh, I love it. <laughs> this is uh, Shinobi Shaw's vessel, in case it isn't totally clear. Um, over the past several issues, I've been wondering if I was alone in remembering the, the poor upstarts, but uh, I love to see this callback. Um, and it's funny, Emma is kind of turned off by the name, which is totally understandable, considering that the upstarts were responsible for, you know, the short-lived deaths of her Hellions back in 1991, so... Callback upon callback upon callback, and I absolutely love it. Now, Kitty and Bishop, they rush off to offer Shinobi some assistance. Kitty runs to the Marauder. Bishop runs through a gateway, because, of course, he can do that. Now, Sebastian watches this and looks as though he might be in on whatever's about to occur. He stands there, looking like he's smelling something foul for a moment, but that's just kind of the face he has, before stepping through a Krakoan gateway himself. From here, we jump to an info page, and it's from the X-Desk. And it talks about some of the stuff we're about to see, and is uh, maybe a few paragraphs too long. <laughs> um, I feel like these info pages should be kept a little bit lighter, a little bit breezier, because when I look at this, it's just... It feels like homework, you know? It's like, there, there's a lot of stuff here to read. And unfortunately, it's just not all that interesting. Um, so... We're in Madripoor, and uh, from the looks of it, Bishop's leaping from building to building. Uh, I mean, that's exactly what it looks like he's doing, but I couldn't tell you why. Uh, he sees a group of young people all packing heat. He approaches one to find out, uh, you know, just what in the hell's going on here. He's advised that they've been told that a group called Varendi, or Varendi, is paying for dead mutants. Hmm... Now, Bishop pays him a little bit more money just to leave the docks and go home. He then reconnoiters with Storm and fills her in on what he just learned. But, uh, you know, before they can do much about it, they see the upstart and they head on over. Inside, they find Shinobi Shaw cowering with a half-dozen children. Before they can, I guess, rescue him, uh, Storm and Bishop are attacked by some very familiar-looking armored geeks. And uh, guess what they're packing? Come on. Come on, this is, a, this is a villain in a Dawn of X X-Men book. What do you think they got? What do you think they got? Well, they've got, wait for it, power-dampening gear. <sighs> yeah, okay, Storm, <laughs> these, these are, you know, the same suits of armor we've already seen before, so it's, I guess we can allow it, but it's still a bit much. Uh, Storm dodges a blast from one and decides to show him how she doesn't need her powers to still pose a threat. And so she, uh, well, she stabs him in the eye with her vibranium knife. 
Yowch. Um, Bishop, he's still got some big old Liefeldian firearms with him, so his loss of powers really doesn't affect him either at this juncture. So, sorry guys. Um, now we zoom out, and we see that the Tiny Tots Hellfire Club is watching all of this go down. And they confirm that they got the suits of power-dampening armor from the Russians, who, as mentioned, we saw them all the way back in Marauders Number 1. Uh, from here, we get an info page on the group known as Hamenes Varendi, which, if my Latin's right, or if uh, you know Google translates right, uh, it means men gowns. I thought, okay. Uh, now this is our little hellfires here, so let's meet them. They're broken up into you know black and white royalty as well. So we have the White King and White Queen are Manuel and Duque and Wilhelmina Kensington, respectively. The White Bishop is Chen Zhao, the uh, the woman we met last uh, over the past several issues, whose husband is part of the uh, the X Men worship cult in uh, was it Taipei. Uh, the White Knight is listed as being vacant. We hop across to the other side. The Black King is Cade Kilgore. The Black Bishop is Maximilian Frankenstein, and the Black Knight is also vacant. Now from here, we zip back to the Marauder, where Kitty, Iceman, and Pyro are headed toward Madripoor. Suddenly, a huge vessel appears on the horizon and is headed right for them. It looks as though our heroes are in for a sort of like a T-bone situation here. Pyro calls out the brace for impact, but the captain has another idea. She manages, and this is a very, very cool and creative use of her power, she manages to phase the entire Marauder through this other ship. Really, really cool stuff. Now, Iceman celebrates briefly before realizing that they're about to be boarded by the hate monger and the executioner. Ew. Well, that's Marauders number five. Next up, Excalibur number five. But well, let's talk about this here. Let's uh, let's digest what we've just read here. Um, probably not my favorite issue of Marauders, but I still liked it a lot. Um. I love, 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 love the little nods to continuity that we're seeing here. Um, having Kitty and Emma refer back to the to that bidding war between the Massachusetts Academy and the Xavier School back, you know, way back in the long ago was unexpected and awesome. Also, further, you know, further stabilizes your poor humble host's, uh, you know, erratic heart when it when it comes to what's in continuity, and what's not. It's looking more and more like everything is in continuity, and uh, I am more than happy <laughs> to have that. Um, and, you know, even on the same subject there, this was actually a great refresher because I never actually put two and two together myself. Um, never saw this angle of the scenes that we see between Emma and Kitty, and I, I really, really dug it. I, You know, it's been so long since we've been with, you know, Little Kitty, and uh, and we didn't know where she was going to go, and it, 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 the refresher was nice. The refresher was nice. Um, another callback, Shinobi calling his vessel the upstart. Friggin' awesome. And uh, as I said earlier, I was starting to think I was the only one that remembered them. Um, and, and hell, even showing Emma's less than happy reaction to learning that he named it that. Very, very cool. Now, speaking of the upstarts, it almost feels as though um, our little junior Hellfire Club here... They're almost like engaging in a similar practice to the upstarts here, uh, where they're, you know, they're they're they they got they have uh, rewards for killing mutants here. So only they've got like cash prizes rather than you know getting points and clout in like this society. 
So I wonder if this will wind up playing out like a 21st century version of the upstarts, which I tell you, it's not the worst idea, though I am wildly biased toward it. So take that with a with a grain of salt. Um, the opening uh, scene, you know, it's a little bit awkward to me. Um, you got to forgive me. I'm still learning this new take on uh, Bobby Drake here. Uh, I was kind of on the fringes of the X fandom when they decided to to you know change his sexuality and. Uh, while I don't have any problems with someone coming to a point in their lives where they decide to embrace and accept themselves, I remember not really digging the way they went about doing it. Um, if I'm remembering right, young Jean Grey basically invaded young Bobby Drake's mind and more or less told him that he was gay. And uh, actually, you know, I'm, I'm not sure there's a more or less about it. I'm pretty sure that's exactly what happened. Um, and I feel like from that very moment, Bobby's entire character changed and... I feel uncomfortable saying it, but it almost like into a stereotype. Um, and I really don't feel comfortable talking about this because I have no real, real world frame of reference on the subject. And, you know, to be honest, my X book reading has been sparse in the interim between then and now. So I very well might have missed some actual character development um, in the offing there. Uh, I can't help but wonder, but I am scared to ask. Uh, <laughs> how did other X fans take to this uh, change in Bobby? Um I, it's one of the questions that I was, that, that was kind of percolating in my head when I, when I was coming back into the X fandom here, because this is a pretty big change. And, uh, you know, I would look online, but I'm sure I'd only find wildly hot and wildly cold takes there. Uh, I'd like to think the listeners of this program are a bit more even tempered and, uh, reasonable than your average interneter. <laughs> and, uh, I, I'd like to hear um, folks' take on on this change in Bobby. And like I said, I'm, I'm always down with character development and evolution and whatnot, but I can't help to feel like this was more of a stunt than an actual progression. Plus, it was written by Bendis, who, I mean, if he didn't have stunt writing, he'd have no writing at all. So yeah, you know what I'm taking the scenic route to say here is the opening bit felt a little bit awkward, but that might just be me, um, you know, still getting getting used to this, uh, this different approach on the character as well. And, uh, speaking of changes in character, I don't want to kvetch about kitty drinking again. I mean, it is what it is. I've joked about it before, but, like, are we headed toward an intervention issue? I mean, because if this were a TV show or a movie, seeing somebody always having a drink in their hand is, is kind of like writery shorthand for... You know, this character is an alcoholic. Is that where we're headed? Or are we still trying to sell 18-page pamphlets for 4 to 5 bucks a pop to 15-year-olds who think drinking is the pinnacle of cool? I just don't know. This feels, like, very try-hard. And uh, as ever, I just don't, I just don't much care for it. Um, let's see here. I like the feeling that Sebastian Shaw is kind of orchestrating some of what we're seeing here. And... Uh, because he doesn't seem all that surprised or bothered learning that his son's ship was under attack. Uh, my question would be, is Shinobi in on this con as well? Because uh, if Sebastian is willing to put his son in harm's way without him, you know, being in on it, that's some, you know, pretty savage stuff. I feel like we might be getting, like, a Shinobi rede redemption arc here as a result of Sebastian's machinations, and uh, if that's the case, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, overall... We're kicking off the Dawn of X Wave 1 number 5 strong with this one, and I can only hope that this level of quality holds up over the next five episodes of this program. But 
That's about all I have to say about this issue, but uh, let's hop into the mailbag here. We have we have a missive from Damien, and then we have uh, a missive from someone who's... Uh, whose feathers I might have ruffled a little bit, but we'll get to that. Um, (laughs) First, we're going to start with Damien. This one's regarding X-Force number four. He says, I'm very confused by X-Force. Issue three was a pretty good issue, but number four is pretty terrible. I do not understand the decision to make Storm and Jean the most hawkish members of the Quiet Council. I would expect them to be amongst the most compassionate. Weird choice. I agree. Definitely a weird choice, and really plays into... My, you know, main criticism of Ben Percy's writing is that everything feels forced and written from re- written in reverse. It's like they almost have to have these characters make these points just to get to, like, this spectacular line that he dreamt up in the shower that he has to drop in every, into, into the book, you know? It's, it's not the greatest. <laughs> it really isn't. Uh, Damien continues, As for Forge, I'll be honest, I haven't read much of him beyond the Muir Island saga, so maybe I missed a change in his personality, but this feels so out of character. I suspect they're trying to communicate his excitement at all new, at these new types of technology, but he really comes across as a Deadpool type. I've always interpreted him as a fairly morose character. Even when he was shown joking with Banshee, there tended to be a dark tone to his humor. Yeah, this is probably the worst I've ever seen Forge handled. And I I don't know what they're going for with it. I don't know why we need, like, this dopey-jokey arms merchant under Krakoa. I don't know why we need that, when Forge was a fine character as it was. I mean, I don't need him arm-wrestling with Wolverine and, and, and having pet names for each other. It's, it's just silly. Um, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. It's um, a lot. It's 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 the Marvel method these days. Round pegs into square holes. You know, if if the characters aren't what you want them to be, well, you just change the character into what you want them to be anyway. And that's kind of what it feels like here. I don't know if this will pay off anywhere down the line. I don't know if like we're gonna find out that. I, I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. Um, Damien continues. I had the same suit jubilee sage reaction as you. It definitely is unwise to put other characters in yellow jackets. I was momentarily confused. And yes, Jubilee and Sage's outfits are almost identical. I mean, to the to the yellow, bright yellow jacket and the gaudy pink sunglasses. And, and the same color hair, you know? It's like, I really wonder. I'm like, oh, Jubilee's hair grew out. <laughs> and we see that a lot in these damn books, because there's like no continuity <laughs> with art. We don't have the uh, Jose Gar- Jose Luis Garcia Lopez character Bibles anymore. It's like, it's like, oh, I forgot, I forgot to draw that that this person only has one arm in this uh, in this panel. Ah, screw it. Who cares? Keep him in there anyway. It's continuity in the art is uh, is lacking. Um, <laughs> Damien wraps up with, by the way, you theorize that they should give adamantium skeletons to everyone, but I thought it only worked on Logan due to his healing factor. Most of the characters would die if their bones were encased in metal, and that's. Absolutely 100% fact. Yes, I wasn't thinking about that. And this is reference to uh, Forge having, like, this giant tub of molten adamantium for any time Wolverine is resurrected. So they'll have it to put on his bones here. And I question, like, hey, why not put it on everybody? Totally forgetting the fact that the only reason Wolverine was able to go through the Weapon X uh, process was because he had the healing factor, which, uh, which would stop the adamantium poisoning, of course. So... Thank you for pointing that out. I had totally spaced it. <laughs> but uh, thank you as always for writing in. 
thank you for uh, for thank you for everything. Uh, we're going to wrap up with uh, an email from David K, and it was a short one, and it goes a little something like this: Please enlighten me as to your review review process. Dot dot dot. I hope I'm not like projecting a tone onto <laughs> onto your email, but uh, this sounds. Uh, I don't know. I hope I didn't get under your skin with anything I said. Um, I'm not sure exactly what the question is. Um, I don't know. You see, because the thing of it is, I don't know that anything I do would qualify as a review. You know, um, maybe review in the broadest sense, but not like... I don't know. There's a difference between like giving your opinion on something and... And doing a review in my in my book in my point of view, um, I'm thinking like like if I just tell you that I like something or I don't like something, that's that's all I'm doing. And I think that's kind of what I do on this show and what I do on the blog. Um, if I review something, I don't know. I feel like I need to like assign a score to it, and that's not something I care to do because I feel like so many places abuse that. Uh, a lot of the online re- uh, uh, what's it a uh, Reviewers, um, they will over-rely on their scoring and less so on their actual opinions. You know, I, I you could say that something is an average book, but you still need to get those that, that clout from the pros, so you're going to give it a ten out of ten anyway. You know, I, I I don't I don't see much value in that. Um, but, you know, to tell a story here, uh, I have worked on sites, and I, I still continue to work on sites and other shows where they do use a, uh, they use, they use a metric. Um, I've done reviews for places that do like the, the one out of five, the, the one to five or the one to ten review score. I've also done things that give letter grades, you know, um, as to what my process would be. Um, if I'm reviewing something for a site that uses, let's say, you know, a, an out of 10, you know, a, you give a score from 1 to 10. I start at a 7. Before I even pick up the book, I'm at a 7. Because I think, I believe truly that most comic books are average. And I think a 7 is an average score. So, I pick up the book, it's a 7. From there, I go up or I go down. So if I finish reading it and I, you know, and it was so much better than average, I'll bring it up to an eight or nine. If I'm reading it and it's getting worse and worse and worse as I go, it's going to tick down to the six and into the fives. Um, that's kind of how I would do something like that. But for what I do here, I don't know that review is the right word for it. Um, I'm just sharing my thoughts here and, uh, I'm not looking for clout. I'm not looking for... I'm not looking to have... Here's the thing. I'm not looking to have my opinions validated by Brian Bendis or Gail Simone or or insert creator here. Or Jonathan Hickman, even. I I don't need them to validate my opinion. I don't need them to share my opinion. I'm giving you my opinion because it's my opinion. And uh, I don't know that I'd ever told anybody not to buy something or to buy something. I, I just give the recommendation as I... As I see it, where it's just, you might like this, or you might not like this, and uh, I don't know. I, I hope I'm answering the question, because um, frankly, I, I don't I don't so much understand it. Uh, <laughs> I'm not usually asked for uh, 
for like peeks behind the curtain. I usually offer them before I'm before I'm you know requested to do it, and uh, so I'm, when I'm when I'm asked to do it, I'm I'm kind of taken off guard. But uh, I hope that answers it. I. Uh, I, I call what we do here uh, discussions and, and visits. And uh, when I write something, I'll, I'll label it as a discussion and review because, like in the broad sense, I am giving an opinion on it, which is a review. But the discussion is the more important part, uh, I feel. I feel like uh, having a, a dialogue, even if it's just with myself, is part of this process um, where the actual... You know, assigning a score to it, um, or anything that goes with it, uh, good or bad, is kind of just secondary. Um, if if I'm working on a site that does that, I got no problem. You know, if I borrow someone's car, I'm going to return it with a full tank of gas. You know, I treat it like like it's my own. I, I don't want to uh, ruffle any feathers in that kind of regard. But uh, for what I do here on X-Lapse, and I'm not sure which program, which episode uh, you might be referencing. This might not even be an X-Lapse question, but it came to the email box. But uh, that's my review process, I guess. (laughs) I hope that answered the question. If it didn't, reach out again. Or that's even if it's going to be for this show. Who knows? Um, So, yes, if... uh, if there's any more information you want, uh, definitely reach out. Let me know uh, what I can elaborate on, and uh, we'll go from there. But thank you for uh, for reaching out. I really appreciate the uh, the engagement. So thank you. But I think that is where we'll uh, we'll end it for today. Uh, next time out, we have Excalibur number five, uh, and Excalibur number four was probably the strongest issue so far. So. Uh, I'd say I'm expecting big things, but I'm I'm really not. I am a realist and, and a cynic, so I'm expecting to be disappointed. But uh, hey, that's when the best surprises happen, right? So if you want to get a hold of me, if you have any questions for me, uh, you can reach out to uh, weirdcomicshistory at gmail dot com or at Ace Comics on Twitter. You can find the show notes at chrisisoninfiniteearth.com, where I'm also starting to get back into uh, writing some text pieces here. Uh, today I wrote a piece on a blockbuster video X-Men one-shot called Be Extra Safe with the X-Men. And it's a, it's a PSA, which uh, you know, might be expected, but it is a wildly strange PSA that I, I recommend folks check out. That's it. Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. Uh, this is also the X-Lapsed page, xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com. Find us on Facebook at 90s X-Men. Tumblr is x-lapsed.tumblr maybe i don't know uh there's also the full audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com but i think that is where we'll leave it today so one last huge thank you to everybody and until next time i will talk to you again real soon see ya
Hello, how's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 43 of X-Lapse, where uh, well, we're going to kick off the number sixes, and we're going to do so with one hell of a book. Now, today we're talking about Marauders number six. Had a cover date on March 2020. The story's called A Time to Reap, so I guess we're, we're still taking lines from that song. Uh, written by Jerry Duggan with art by Matteo Lali and Mario, De, Mario Del Panino. Colors, Eric Archinaga and Federico Blee. Letters, VCs, Corey Petit. Head of X's Hickman. Edits, Robinson White, Sobolski. Cover price, $3.99. And this one went on sale January 22nd, 2020. Oddly, um, in the credits page, uh, Tom Muller as design does not get credited here. I don't know if uh, that was something they left out or if uh, maybe his deal was only for the first five issues. I don't know. But... We open with a roll call, and uh, the folks featured in this issue will be Pyro, Iceman, Call Me Kate, Lockheed, Bishop, Shinobi Shaw, Storm, and Sebastian Shaw. Then we get a single-page spread of creds. You see, I knew they could do it. I knew they could do it. Now let's just see if they can maybe keep it up. So... We rejoin our comics action on board the Marauder, where douche villains, the hate monger, and the executioner are making their presence known. It looks like by the time we come back here, they've already taken Bobby out. However, the tandem of Pyro and Lockheed, well, I'm assuming Lockheed provided the flame, are doing what they can to keep them at bay. Kitty phases Bobby into the down-below quarters so he can regain his bearings, and she leaves him in the care of Lockheed to look over him. So, uh, I'm gonna guess that he gave Pyro a light first? Eh. Back topside, Kitty phases Pyro out of the hate monger's chokehold and then stabs the baddie in the left shoulder. The executioner responds to this by going to impale Kitty with that weird stick thing that he carries, only she phases, so it phases through her, and actually winds up lodged into Pyro. Now, luckily, this wasn't a fatal blow or anything, and uh, we're about to discover that it was never actually intended to be in the first place. You see, what the executioner was actually doing here was injecting a teeny tiny little ominous Verende member, uh, this is Yellow Jacket, into Pyro's bloodstream. This is sort of some uh, kind of, you know, fantastic voyage sort of stuff, and sadly not the Coolio kind. Now, this Yellow Jacket is uh, a fellow by the name of Darren Cross, who I think mostly screwed with Scott Lang. Anyway, we shift back to Madripoor, where we see the little Hellfires discussing how their plan is going. They're happy that their man is inside the fire starter, which I'm going to assume they're making a prodigy reference since we all know Pyro can't actually make flames. Anyway, they're really pleased since they're sure he'll uncover all sorts of information that many interested parties will be willing to fork over massive amounts of cash for. Which, you know, gotta say, ain't the worst plan. As they look on, Bishop and Storm free the upstart with plans of rendezvousing with the Marauder so that they can use its gateway to get the refugees they rescued back to Krakoa safely and speedily. Now, speaking of the Marauder, let's head on back. Now, Kitty is about to cross swords with the Executioner, and she gives us the, uh, the quick and dirty on him. He's an ex-fed, big-time anti-mutant bigot. She kind of acts like he's been away for a while, though 
I can swear I remember seeing him on a bunch of covers during the Blue and Gold years. Uh, Maybe those were just variants. I don't know. Whatever the case, let me tell you a little bit about The Executioner. Now, picture it. 1993. (laughs) My friends and I were like 100% positive that this goofball was going to be like the next big thing in the X-Books when he he made his first appearance. Uh, Now, this he either showed up in... Are the Uncanny X-Men or the X-Men Volume 2 Annual for 1993? I think it was Uncanny. Uh, this is when Marvel was introducing new characters in all their 1993 annuals, similar to what DC did with Blood t- Bloodlines. So, And they even polybagged these and, uh, and put a little trading card in there. So Uncanny X-Men Annual, whatever it was for 1993, was polybagged and had a, had a very collectible Executioner trading card included. Now, the other X-Men book, which would have been, would have been Volume 2, if my memory's right, uh, gave us a weirdo called Empyrene, who didn't look near as cool as the Executioner. So now, my friends and I, I mean, we were veterans of the comics game at this point. We were probably, uh, we were probably fans for about a year. So we were, we had a lot of X-Fandom under our belts at the time, and we thought we knew a thing or two about the trends in the industry. I mean, after all, we read Wizard every once in a while, you know? Uh, no, we were just very, very stupid. Now, whatever the case, I remember buying this guy's first appearance, and for the longest time, I refused to take it out of the poly bag. Uh, for a little bit of context, in the fall of 1992, the Executioner song came out. Twelve issues across four titles, all poly bagged with a trading card, right? Those issues I had zero qualms about opening. This really awful X-Men annual, however, I refused <laughs> because I was sure that the Executioner's debut issue would, uh, you know, I thought this was going to be another New Mutants number 87, you know. It was not. Uh, now, this poor Executioner fellow would only show up a handful of times, and he'd always get his butt handed to him when he did. Uh, weirdly enough, they even gave this guy a Toy Biz action figure, and this figure really sucked. I mean, those things had awful articulation and gimmicky triggers as it was. You know, you pull a little trigger on their back, they do a karate chop or something stupid that really hindered your posability, right? You couldn't just stand them up or, or kneel them down or anything. They had these, this stupid lever sticking out of their back or something. But with the executioners, they like, took it to another level. Like, you couldn't even bend him at the elbows or knees. I don't even think you could bend him at the waist. It was very, very awful. Like, you could maybe bend his him at the shoulder joint, I think. Really bad, um, and it was almost like an insult to injury to uh, to little Chris's Pollyannish forecasting of this dude's overall importance to the uh, the X books and and comics history as a whole. All right, enough of him. Let's get back to the book. Uh, Kitty battles back both the Executioner and the Hatemonger before deciding to maybe jump back over to the vessel that the bad guys arrived on to see what's what. She hops over and discovers that this craft is carrying a whole slew of those Russian-powered dampening suits of armor that we've seen a few times over the past few issues. She then phases to the upper deck and sees Donald Pierce. And, uh, yeah, I was wondering slash dreading when he'd finally show up. Also, Chen Zhao. Now, they're treating this like a very mundane encounter, or they're the bad guys anyway. Uh, you see, they're here on a diplomatic endeavor, and they, they calmly and politely ask Kitty to depart their rig. She does not. They warn that if she were to attack, that'd be akin to an act of aggression against the sovereign nation of Madripoor. Kitty don't care. Uh, she does not want those suits of armor making it anywhere near shore, and so a fight breaks out. Kitty hip-tosses Donald, threatening to toss him overboard. 
She also punches Chen Zhao square in the mush. As this scuffle continues, the upstart manages to catch up with its sister ship. Pierce comments that it must be nice for Kitty to be surrounded and protected by all these other powerful mutants, which is a seed of a thought that'll come up again later. Now, the hate monger throws, like, a whole duffel bag full of explosives at Bishop, which, I mean, is a dumb play in any case, especially so when it's Bishop, since he's able to absorb the blast and redirect it back at the bad guys. Storm then commands the wind to swoop old Donald Pierce into the drink. Kitty then sends poor Chen in right after. So we've got our not-so-fearsome foursome all bobbing in the drink. Bobby wakes up, and the team reconnoiters while planning how they're going to get all these boats back home. Kitty agrees to sail the Pierce vessel to Magneto's old Island M in the Bermuda Triangle. And at that point, Forge, Beast, and Sage might get a better look at these you know, Russian power-dampening suits of armor. We find out here that Forge was actually in part responsible for them existing in the first place, which may or may not be brand new information, I'm not sure. Now the Marauder and the Upstart will head on back to Krakoa. Storm will portal back quickly in order to inform the Quiet Council about the troubles that are currently brewing in Madripoor. From here we get an info page, and this is some notes like a journal from Yellowjacket. And this is a pretty good info page, because... It fills us in on everything that our little pyro occupant is learning on his trip into Krakoa. We learn a bit more about the Marauder ship itself, too, and, uh, you know, I could probably go for one of those old-fashioned cross-sections to better see this. I mean, we got one for Summerhouse, right? Why not do it for the Marauder? Anyway, this rig is pretty decked out. It's got a hair salon, a nail salon, a movie theater, and wardrobes full of fabulous clothing. All right, back to comics. Dust is settled, for the most part and we rejoin Kitty on the deck of the Pierce vessel. She is soon approached by Sebastian Shaw, who'd been in hiding this entire time. Now, the first thing he does is fire a net at Lockheed to take him off the board. He then greets Kitty and tells her he's brought a handful of Krakoan seeds with him for this confrontation. Kitty suggests that Shaw might find himself in a stasis alongside Sabretooth when this all gets back to the council, but he ain't worried about none of that. Shaw tosses the seeds at Kitty's feet, and they instantly grow into a tangle of vines which crawl up her body and tangle her up real good. He tells Kitty that none of this is really her fault. It's just that Krakoa never accepted her, and so she must not be penciled in on the future of mutantum. He also, well, you know, he, he wants her seat on the Quiet Council to go to someone he can control. Shaw's yacht arrives on the horizon, and so our man prepares to head off. But first, he decides to dump poor netted-up Lockheed into the drink. Kitty promises that if Shaw saves her pet dragon, she'll just give him her seat. Shaw's like, nah. Then he deboards, and then he sinks the, uh, the ship. So, we're left with Kitty, all entangled in the vines here, just above the surface of the water as the vessel begins to sink. She yells out to Shaw that if she dies, they'll just bring her back. There's no getting rid of her. Shaw? He isn't so sure about that. Oh. Wow, there's a, there's a sentence where my accent kind of gets in the way, and that sure isn't so sure about that. He suggests that since Kitty hasn't been accepted by Krakoa, maybe, just maybe, the rules of resurrection might not apply to her. So she'll be dead, dead dead, for good. And so Shinobi will ascend to the Red King's seat, and before long, he'll probably have his own queen in white. He'll have an entire quarter of the Quiet Council and will be wealthier and more powerful than ever. He talks some more. Uh, this dude really likes the sound of his own voice. Makes me happy I'm not narrating this. 
he talks about, you know, putting everything into place here. Masterminding the plan to get the Marauder Madripoor bound, if you remember last issue. He seemed to know exactly what was going on, and uh, everything seemed to be falling into place for him. He also made a deal with Donald Pierce. He also chatted up Christian Frost about Kitty's perceived weaknesses and how um, maybe Iceman only turned down his offer to travel with him last issue because, you know, Iceman's an Omega-level mutant and he's needed in order to keep poor Kitty alive because, you know, Kitty might as well be a one-and-done. You know, if she's not accepted by Krakoa, maybe she can't come back. She's got to live her life uh, (laughs) only once. And so we wrap up this issue with Kitty sinking below the surface of the water and, well, drowning. And that's that. Next episode, we will be discussing Excalibur number six. But first, let's talk about what we just read. So, another Dawn of X issue. Another cliffhanger threatening a mutant death, which uh, if you've been following along, you know this is something I've come to really get tired of. Here, though, it works. Not only was this issue fantastic overall, but the tired old cliffhanger of potentially killing a mutant actually feels like it matters. Because at this point, and if we pretend not to know what's happening later, we don't know if Kitty's resurrectable, easy for me to say. I mean, if we've seen covers for subsequent issues of this book, we have a pretty good idea, but we'll play along. We don't know at the moment if Kitty's resurrectable. I can't say that word. Resurrectable. And here's the thing. This very likely could open up a whole lot of interesting story beats as to Kitty's relationship with Krakoa itself. I mean, let's not pretend Kitty won't be back. She will be back. And that's even assuming that she actually dies here, right? But if she is dead and is resurrectable, we might get a few answers, or at least hints, as to why she's been, like, disallowed from passing through the portals. You know, maybe that'll open up some more information. Maybe we'll find out some stuff about Mora. Who knows? I'm looking forward to it. This was probably the best Hoxpox take on Kitty I've seen to this point. She wasn't overly abrasive, and she wasn't drunk or play-acting drunk. She was scared, she was angry, and this was all very, very well done. Let's hop across to the uh, to the bad guys here. I'm really liking this Hamane's Verende team. Uh, we're actually getting real villains, and not just, like, nameless mercs or monsters of the week. Imagine that. I mean, we're actually using established X-Men lore and X-Men villains to pose a threat to our mostly unkillable-for-long heroes. The tandem of Executioner and Hatemonger, silly as they are, work quite well together. I mean, they're both bigoted douchebags, which I suppose makes them sort of low-hanging fruit, but they're established low-hanging fruit, and it makes 100% complete sense for them to be wrapped up in the Hellfire Tots' plans. Now, this version of Yellow Jacket, not a character I know all that much about, but the way they utilized them here was perfect. Implanted into Pyro, who's taking the Marauder back to Krakoa, thereby not having to step through a portal. There's really something cool here in the uh, Yellow Jacket journal info page, right? He mentions something that he'd been led to believe that mutants wanted to exterminate humanity. But, just from spending a bit of time in and with them, maybe he's not so sure. He he says that they seem to be a lot more chill than he was expecting. And, uh, so, I mean, it begs the question, could he be coming around? I I suppose we'll have to wait and see. What's cool about this, though, is that we learn that Verendi is using propaganda in order to recruit people to their cause. 
and not to get all real world on us here, and I, I think I've said something along these lines before, though I couldn't pinpoint exactly when because, you know, I talk a lot. Let's, for a moment, put ourselves into the human's shoes for a minute on the 616, right? It's easy for us as readers who know and love the X-Men to see them as being completely heroic and hate those who fear and hate them. But, again, let's pretend that we're humans in the 616 for a minute. Mutants have declared not only their sovereignty, but their superiority. Ominous Verinde then stokes the flames by propagating that the mutants might not be quite as peaceful as the bald dude in the weird helmet says. Stands to reason that this could very easily get into people's heads and make them very scared. I'm pretty sure I'd be scared. So, in playing off those fears, and as we learned last issue, offering cash prizes, Verendi is able to recruit willing participants to their cause, who are mostly worried about self-preservation rather than relying on an intrinsic hatred of mutant kind. So, you don't need bigots. You just got. You just need people who are scared. So this is just so well done on so many levels. I, I mean, and then, I mean, we have Yellow Jacket here. He's showing a little bit of a doubt about the veracity of what he'd been led to believe, which might just be the first crack in the armor, but it's a hell of a place to start, right? I mean, this fantastic stuff. Overall, I loved this issue. I feel like I'm saying this a lot when it comes to Marauders, but this might be the best issue yet. So, a uh, heck of a problem to have, right? <laughs> a series that gets better with every installment? What year are we in? I mean, this doesn't feel like current year. Oh, boy. But, uh, yeah, I love this issue. I hope uh, everybody enjoyed hearing me gush about this issue. But uh, that's about all I have to say about this issue for now. But before we go, let's do a little bit of digging in the mailbag. Okay, we'll start with Damien, who is discussing X-Force number 5 here. And he says, I'm not a big fan of gore in my X-Men comics, but if they insist on doing it, I like them to go over the top. This issue is approaching Lobo levels of cartoon violence. I do like the idea of, ha of half a Wolverine chasing people down, um, and I like the idea of sticking him together like a broken plate. As you say, the whole plot relies on the villains being very stupid. And yes, the, the visuals here with Wolverine, I mean... The look on his face as the top half of him impales one of those mercs or xenos or whoever the hell they were. That was very, very funny and definitely uh, almost like evocative of Lobo uh, in in just the look of that panel uh, as, as well as, you know, the tone of it. Um, I did like them sticking him back together. I thought that was cool. Uh, the mercs, though, the, 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 that was so bad. Um, the... The Mercs or the Xeno people or whoever they were, they were just, like, really, really dumb here. I mean, you'd figure a group of, like, paid mercenaries would, I don't know, maybe do a little bit of homework on what they're doing here. It's, I mean, this is Wolverine, right? Who in the Marvel Universe doesn't know Wolverine? I mean, hell, who in the Marvel Universe does Wolverine not know himself? It seemed very, very strange where maybe any other... Half a X-Man, I would consider fair game for maybe not knowing the potential for destruction and violence. But, I mean, it's Wolverine. That's That should be the guy. That, that should be like the, the Ace of Spades card in the, uh, in the Who to Avoid list for, uh, for X-Men bad guys. But 
Uh, Damien continues, despite all of this, despite all of this, it's never going to be for me, and I'm not warming to it as a whole. Biggest problem remains the out-of-character dialogue. I'm continuing to see the authorial voice overwhelm Beast and Jean in particular, and yeah, it's so very forced. Um, I mentioned when we started this that all I knew Ben Percy from was a run on Teen Titans that I was compelled to write about for a couple of years, and... That was not very good. Um, it was actually it was actually something I came to dread every month. When I knew that Teen Titans was coming out on a particular Wednesday and the comp would arrive in my email box, it was just like, Ugh. how many different ways can I say I don't like this, you know? Um, without, you know, being, you know, being a dick about it, you know? I didn't want to, I didn't want to say anything about the guy, but it was just not a good book. It was not a good fit. I feel like he has like a handful of character archetypes that he really likes to write. And then he kind of just forces them on whatever characters that he's actually being paid to write. Whether it fits the characters or not, it really doesn't matter. It's just the way it's going to be, unfortunately. And that's that's kind of how I feel about his Beast, especially. Uh, I think the Beast is probably the uh, the one with the most damage from this uh, this kind of writing. Uh, Damien wraps up with, Can't wait for tomorrow's Fallen Angels. I know you say it's your least listened to, but I think you do a really good job of explaining how and why it fails, and more people should listen. They're often your funniest episodes, too, but I do have a slightly perverse sense of humor. Well, thank you. <laughs> I definitely wish more people would listen to Fallen Angels episodes. Uh, heck, I wish more people would listen to all the episodes, but uh, Fallen Angels, they really need some listener love. That's for sure. Um... Those are days where I think I, I think I'm a little bit looser <laughs> because I am I just know nobody's listening to it or very few people are listening to it and it's one of those things where I've said it before I mean all these episodes are free but I still feel like I'm ripping people off for their time when I'm doing a Fallen Angels issue because there's just so little to say um, so I try to try to keep it as light and as fluffy as possible <laughs> in order to make it. At least somewhat engaging. Uh, maybe when I finish the sixth episode, I'll release all six as a massive, co you know, collected for the trade episode that uh, nobody will listen to. We'll see. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much, Damien. Um, next up, Jason Colby writes in. He says, I finished my catch-up binge read and binge listen, so now it's time for my binge email. Here are a few things I've thought about while listening to your podcast that I feel like subjecting you to. First, Swords. It's been great fun listening to you take note of every sword alluded to or shown on panel in every Dawn of X book. To tell more would be spoilers, but those of us who are reading in Marvel real-time, and currently well stuck into the X of Tens event, know what I mean. And uh, this is one of those things where I thought, like, kind of like the uh, the Apocalypse A thing, I, I worried about it becoming like an old joke, like... like I was being overbearing and people would be like, oh, this idiot, can he just stop? <laughs> so I... I thought maybe I'd be a, I was being a little bit overbearing, like perking my voice up every time a sword would show up or be referenced to. Um, and uh, I'm thinking here, like I'm trying to do my my calendar. I'm not good at calendars. Uh, I am the guy who, during my first year blogging, I had 13 days of Christmas because I didn't know how to read a calendar. So that, that this is all with a shake of salt here, but. The way that this show is going, if everything continues the way it's going to and allotting for space for other projects, 
I think we'll hit X of tens by mid-January. Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed that I know how to read a calendar, and also fingers crossed that things keep up this way. So by then, we'll have all the sword stuff paying off. Uh, Jason's next point, Brian Edward Hill. He says, you know how there are some comic authors or artists who do phenomenal work, but but you feel bad about liking them because in personal relations, they seem like giant a-holes? Well, Brian Hill is the opposite of that. He's just about the nicest comic creator on Twitter, but has lately been producing work, including Dawn of X's own Fallen Angels, that just doesn't get my engine going. He has a penchant for endless scenes of conversation that are clearly supposed to be deep and meaningful, but really just make me feel bored and nauseated. I do recommend his Marvel Killmonger mini, which was an exploration of the villain character from the Black Panther movie, and especially his Vertigo American Gothic series, which somehow tackles the state of race relations in current year U.S. in a way that doesn't make me want to run for the hills and become a hermit. He's also the writer on the DC streaming TV show Titans, which I've heard that some people like. So now I kind of feel bad. Uh, (laughs) I feel... I'm happy to hear he's a nice guy. But that really makes me feel bad about dogging his work here. Um, I mean, you mentioned comics creators on Twitter. And I'm really only used to knowing current-year comics creators by which half of the country they claim to hate (laughs) on Twitter. Um... I'd have to I'd have to keep an eye out for some of his work. I know I've mentioned that I have his his complete run of Batman and the Outsiders, but I haven't read it, so I don't know how that is. But again, that also heavily features Ra's al Ghul, who I cannot stand. So maybe one of these days I'll make a point of uh, of checking out one of those Batman and the Outsiders issues. Maybe do a blog post about it um, just to keep me honest <laughs> and give me and make it a multitasker, right? I can't read things for fun anymore. It has to be for another purpose. Um, but uh, yeah, I'll, I'll have to keep an eye out for some of his work. Uh, though if I were to uh, subject myself to the Titans show, I'd need like a truckload of Xanax. If if it's the show I'm thinking of, which is the F Batman show, is that the one? Is if it is, yeah, there's probably little possibility of me watching that ever. <laughs> Uh, Jason continues Queen and Captain I'm going to gently disagree with fellow ex-lapsed correspondent Damien While I know just enough of UK politics to understand that the Queen is generally uninvolved legislation I don't know why I don't know that it's so relevant to Captain Britain As I understand it Captain Britain gains her powers from a magic amulet and a metaphysical relationship between the island of Great Britain and the mystical land of Otherworld. While parliaments are all well and good for passing laws and negotiating trade agreements for mutant pharmaceuticals, it seems to me that all this mystical stuff is far more at home in the world of kings and queens than in the barristers and bureaucrats. It's hard to imagine her royal whiness, Opaluna Saturnine, having tea with Boris Johnson or Jeremy Corbyn. So I'm okay with Betsy meeting directly with Liz too, and not the backbenchers at Westminster. I didn't know who any of those people were. Uh, <laughs> and I, I can totally see that. The Queen is as good a point of contact as any. Though, I say that not only as an American, not only as an ignorant American, but as a willfully ignorant American. Uh, <laughs> I don't pay attention to the politics in my own country, much less globally. Uh, I, I view politics as a theater, you know? Um, I feel like... Washington, D.C. has been in gridlock since long before I walked on this earth, and it'll be the same way long after I'm not. So I see American politics as as a lot of theater. 
Um, so for someone like me, uh, who, you know, uh, Teeny Howard might just be writing for someone as ignorant as me, the Queen works just fine. Though, that said, I definitely can see how someone from the UK or England or Great Britain or whatever I'm supposed to call that might raise an eyebrow at such a thing uh, being, being a thing. Jason continues, regarding X-Men number four, this is one of my favorite Dawn of X issues so far, and I have been looking forward to hearing your coverage of it. Part of the reason I like it so much is that it deals directly with the issue that most interests me, how the new Krakoa mutants and the human world are coming to terms with each other. Yes, the mutants sorta kinda come across as villains, yes, the humans more than kinda sorta come across as villains themselves. But I can see the validity of both sides of this inevitable conflict, and this rising tension is something that made Hox and Pox so special. Charles and Eric have founded a nation. I want to see it act like a nation. And I'm glad that, that we're bringing this up today, because uh, we I, I spent a little while before talking about the humans in the 616 and how, how as readers we have this, I don't want to say knee-jerk reaction, but we have, like, our heart is with the X-Men. Right? I mean, whether we've been reading forever or just a little while, we know that the X-Men are who we should be rooting for. So we have this sort of preconception about the humans in that that they are going to be the villainous side here. And we can't always explain why. You know, I remember reading, like, the old Wizard magazines back in uh, the 90s, and the, or the old, any any sort of promotional thing that the X-Men would have, like the Pizza Hut X-Men special comics from, like, 92, 93, they would always have, like, a list. It's like, oh, here's the, the X-Men's ten worst enemies, and, like, you'd get to number two, and it would be Magneto. And it's like, well, who could be number one? And then you turn the page, and number one is humans. <laughs> it was always humans. It was so heavy-handed, and it's like, well, humans hate them and fear them, and yada, yada, yada. In this situation... I, I, as I mentioned earlier, discussing the ones that uh, that the uh, the little Hellfire Club are, you know, putting into into the position. I think a lot of it is a uh, self-preservation, right? The humans here they're worried, and the mutants here they are also worried. So it's like acts of self-preservation are almost bound to make anyone look somewhat villainous because you're looking out for yourself, right? It's it's maybe not necessarily screw the other guy, but it's I'm worrying about myself. If they come along, that's great. If not, I'm worried about me. In this uh, little summit here, neither side came across all that great. And uh, something that kind of got under my skin, but I understood it, was that it was almost passive-aggressive. The, uh, I mean, Magneto quoting Huxley, and it's like, come on, dude. Uh, I I felt like it was almost passive-aggressive. And I think I came away from that issue more uncomfortable than anything. And uh, this this Dawn of X run I mentioned before has a has a penchant for uh, low hanging fruit, you know, where of course it's going to be the the dumb American. It's going to be <laughs> he's going to be the one who's going to be the the mustache twirling bad guy. And uh, I don't know, I don't want to say that was lazy, but I, I think it was a little too easy. Uh, back to back to Jason. He says, unless I'm mistaken, this issue also features the very first time in the Hickman era that we see Charles remove his Cerebro helmet. So this issue also marked the death of my Charles Xavier is the Maker theory, and of course the Maker was uh, Reed Richards from the Ultimate Universe. If I'm remembering right. Uh, Jason continues. I still haven't figured out why Hickman hid Professor X's face from us until this moment. 
if this really is just plain old Charles Xavier. This seems like it should have been a bigger deal. Maybe Hickman was just messing with us. And it's funny you mention that, because I was actually going to comment on that during the episode, but I wasn't sure this actually was the first time Xavier was seen without his headwear. You know, and I, but I think you're right. Um, I, I would have to pull out the issue of X Force where he, you know, pops out of his gold ball to see if he was wearing, or not, not to see if he was wearing a helmet, of course, but to see if they showed his full head, or if it was, you know, hindered in some sort of a way, like it, like it has been for so much of this run. But I think you're right, and yeah, I don't know why they waited so long if it was just going to be plain old Charles. It seems very strange. Um, Jason continues And the menu from the meeting Watermelon watermelon gazpacho and all that Is one of my favorite data pages in all of Dawn of X Every time I see a data page I ask myself Is this an object that would really truly exist in this world? This menu passes the test with flying colors To me it makes the world feel much more solid and three-dimensional Than what we get pretty much all other you mentioned that along with the comics you uh, sorry, you mentioned that along with the comics themselves, you like to collect posters and other ephemera that exists alongside the comics. If you lived in a world where Krakoa were real, wouldn't you like to own a copy of the menu from the first meeting of the Krakoan Council and the great and good of the International Order of Davos? I know I would, and yes, yes, your point is well taken here. If I frame it that way. That makes a lot of sense. Um, I never considered the data page as ephemera or a commodity. Um, I see the data pages as information that they don't feel like drawing more often than that or or a way to meet a page quota that they otherwise wouldn't. But to look at it through a different way here and see this as um, something that could exist in the real world, yeah, yeah, definitely. Your point is 100% well taken. And yes, that is something I would definitely like to own. Uh, for sure, especially if uh, you know, it has like a the ring from a bottom of a champagne flute on it, maybe the little condensation ring. So it's it, it'd be a lived-in piece of ephemera. Uh, Jason continues the upstart. Thank you for calling out how the name of this boat connects to Shinobi's past exploits. That comes from a bit of X history I haven't read and is something I didn't pay the slightest attention to on my initial Dawn of X read-through. It's nice to see such connections between this new status quo and what's come before. So when you notice such things, please keep pointing them out. And yes, uh, that's, you know, seeing and pointing out these old references is some of the funnest stuff about doing this show. Um, I mean, not only do I just, am I just a sucker for that thing, sort of thing, it's uh, also further... um, Validation that these things actually happened, right? That was the thing I was worried about when we started this. And I mentioned shoes dropping until, you know, my tongue almost fell out. But I was always worried that we were going to find out that certain things didn't happen, certain things happened in different timelines. When we get stuff like this, these callbacks, that's just further, it's more concrete that these things actually happened. And uh, I love it. So I will always point those things out. And uh, it's some of the funnest part of this, especially on Marauder's Day, since this seems to be the book that ha- that's like most proud of actually having a history, right? <laughs> I mean, there's hardly an issue of Marauders Goes By where I don't get tickled by something, by a nod to the past. So that's, that's very, very cool. Jason continues, the hate monger. I didn't know who the hate monger was. I don't know who a lot of these characters are. So after reading Marauders number five and seeing online who the characters in the cliffhanger were, I went and Googled hate monger. Hate monger is ridiculous. That's all I have to say about that. And, uh, yep, (laughs) he sure is. What I think about when I think of the hate monger is 
a poster that Marvel put out probably 1989 or so. And it's this giant poster featuring just about every Marvel character. And uh, they give you a picture of it in all Marvel comics. And of course... Comics were printed on newsprint back then, so you don't really get a good look at, like... It's not a high-definition picture, you know? So if you wanted to actually see it, you'd have to buy this giant poster that has all the characters on it. And in the ad, it would say, it's like, buy this and find the hate monger. It's like, hint, he's the one in the middle. So it's like, uh, that's what I always think about when I think about the hate monger. Um, Other than the fact that he is, uh, you know, pants on head ridiculous. So yes. Uh, Jason continues. In his coven. Speaking of ridiculousness, you seem to think it was at least a little bit ridiculous that in Excalibur number 5, Apocalypse referred to Richter Gambit et al. as his coven. I thought this was a nice parallel with the coven Akaba, as, as has, that has been working for Morgan and against Apocalypse's interest all this time. He seems like the kind of guy who, if his enemy has a coven, he wants to have one too. And I can see that. I can see that. Apocalypse is a fairly self-important dude who, uh, who would probably want to have what his enemy has. It... I guess it just felt a little stilted to me, but then again, Excalibur as a whole feels pretty stilted to me, so mileage may vary. (laughs) Uh, Jason continues, Dragonfire. When it was revealed that Shogo's Dragonfire is something that can weaken the wall separating our mundane reality from Otherworld, I flipped back to the issue where this happened to see what it looked like on the page. Surely the art would have contained hints that something special was going on, that this was the very fabric of magical space-time being rent asunder before our very eyes. Nope. Just some very standard-looking green flames that make the bad guys run away and let the good guys escape. This feels like a missed opportunity. In contrast, when we learned in a data page in X-Force number 2 that Professor X had been tracked to Krakoa by a homing device, whose likely source was the champagne or crab cake appetizers from the so- Sokovian Treaty Ceremony, I flipped back to that ceremony as depicted in X-Force number 1, and son of a gun, but on the bottom of page 21, we can see something very suspicious looking in Charles Champagne Flute. Call me greedy, but this is the kind of tight continuity and attention to detail that I want to see more of in these books. And yes, that's a great call-out. That's an awesome call-out, and I... Looking at it now, because you did include a picture in your your message, uh, looking at it now... The attention that they paid to it, I should have seen it. <laughs> I definitely should have noticed it, but I missed it. I totally missed it. That's an awesome call out. And I, I'll admit, uh, sometimes I do skim the info pages. Sometimes they're a bit much, so <laughs> I apologize for that. But no, that's an awesome call out. And definitely a piece of tight continuity that uh, these books could use more of, uh, for sure. Uh, Jason wraps up his message with, That's well more than enough for me, so I'm going to wrap up. Until Magneto finds himself stuck to a refrigerator, make mine X-lapsed. And uh, thank you so much for all your thoughts. That's that's some great stuff. I, I love getting... I love all these messages. It's it's probably the, the most fun part of the show, is uh, being able to talk to folks and uh, and compare notes. It's, it's very, very cool. Very, very satisfying. And uh, really means a lot to me. More than I can put into words. We have one more piece of mail to do here. It's from Al Sedano, and he just read House of X number 6, so episode 11. He's got one more to go before the Dawn of X reaches him. He says, just one more to go, and it's time to dive into the first Dawn of X trade after that. But I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. There's a lot of stuff in this issue alone. First of all, there's Xavier's speech. Damn, it's something like Xavier would say, but if Magneto had had been given the chance to rewrite it. 
Now I can see what you're saying, looking at the speech from the point of view of the humans in the Marvel Universe. The irony of it is, it's their fault. They could have accepted mutants and had, and had them work with them in the current societies to stop the evil ones and subjected the same laws. But they didn't. And yes, 100% true. A lot of chickens coming home to roost here, for sure. Uh, Al continues, Now we know who everyone is on the Quiet Council, except for Emma's pick of the Red King or Queen. From just being on Twitter, I think I know who that is, but I'll see if I'm right before saying anything. I do want to know why on the info page, their empty spot and Krakoa's are both shaded the same way. Don't we already know that Krakoa's there? And yeah, that is weird. I actually had to pull out the issue again to check. And uh, yeah, they both have like uh, they both have like hash lines going through them. It's very, very strange. Um, yeah, Krakoa is not an unknown entity at the table, so that's strange. Um, and I'm trying to remember who I had picked as Red King or Queen. I think even at this point, maybe not at this point, but early on, I assumed that it might be uh, Mora herself was going to be the Red Queen. But uh, no, <laughs> that was not the case at all. Uh, as it, when you get to this episode, you'll know, especially this episode, because uh, the Red Queen kind of dies here. Uh, Al continues, just like you, I must have missed when Sinister went crazy. I hope someone who's been reading the last few years has written in to let us know when this happened. And I'm thinking back, and I think someone did write in and said that he was depicted this way or in this manner during the 2015 Secret Wars. So that either happened or I dreamt it, which would tell you a lot about my dreams. (laughs) They're pretty sad, I guess. But uh, yeah, Sassy Sinister, I want to say it was Secret Wars, and I also want to say, because, I mean, Hickman was... 2015 Secret Wars, so maybe, maybe that's where it comes from. Uh, Al continues, Speaking of Xavier and Magneto acting more like one another, it's weird how Mags was the first one to agree with Jean's law of kill no human. I would have thought Xavier would have been first. I wonder if hearing about that law would placate most of the human population. And I had, I had the issue out already, so I double-checked this, because not because of this scene in particular, but because I could have sworn the law was kill no man and not kill no human. And in re- rechecking the pages here, it looks like I was both right and wrong. Gene indeed says kill no human. However, the actual info page that decrees the laws of Krakoa simply says kill no man. And I believe I called that into question after Magic had asked if any of her alien pursuers were human in New Mutants number 5 to see whether or not she's allowed to kill them. So I guess it's still sort of nebulous. Uh, it says kill no man on the, on the decree, but kill no human during the meeting... I don't know. Uh, now, as, as for Xavier wanting to agree, I remember being very uncomfortable during this scene and uh, almost feeling like Xavier was in, a little in over his head. Like he didn't, he didn't really know how to run a government. So I think maybe here he was just sitting back and watching the government take shape without much of his own intervention to see just, you know, what this council he put together is going to do and what they'll say without him putting his thoughts out there because what he says pretty much goes right so i think he was just maybe giving them a little bit of autonomy in deciding uh what's going to stand uh what they're going to allow to stand on krakoa Uh, al continues 
Regarding your question about Krakoa having some, some kind of stasis tubes, in giant size number one, it was holding the original X-Men prisoner in something similar, so this really isn't much of a stretch. And yes, that's totally right. Uh, I believe Lamar wrote in uh, back in the long ago to mention this, uh, and I totally neglected that myself, despite the fact that probably like three months ago I did a, like a long-form review on <laughs> giant size on the blog. So yeah, I totally spaced it. <laughs> Um, Al wraps up with, finally, about Damien's feedback in this episode. Husk and Archangel once had sex in midair in front of her mother, so I don't think those two have much shame. As for his comment about Storm having rejected godhood before, acting in a high priestess capacity isn't really the same as far as I see it. Also, most of, those, most of the time those were offered to her by villains, so as much as she was rejecting that, she was also rejecting them. This situation might be different. And I have to pull up the old script to see what that is. And uh, in doing so, I realized how long the script for episode 11 was. It was like nearly 30 pages. Oh, boy. And probably probably very long. Um, I think it was a long episode, maybe like close to an hour. Um, I think this was a reference, if I'm not mistaken, to the Greg Pak Storm series, which came out around the time I started to, like, nope out of the uh, X-Men solo stuff. So I really can't speak to that. I don't know if uh, maybe Damien can help out. I don't exactly remember um, that. Or actually, I, I, not that I don't remember it. I just don't plain, I plain don't know it because I, I wasn't reading that. Um, and yes, <laughs> Husk and Archangel bumping uglies in front of the Guthries. Yeah, we really didn't dis- deserve the majesty of the Chuck Austin X-Men, did we? I mean, that was, that was something great. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think I think I mentioned this probably a couple episodes ago. The the whole thing with them being nude, I took that as a reference to or a nudge uh, about like the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. You know, they had no shame there. They were uh, they were just kind of living the way they were. You know, before they found shame. So maybe a sign of uh, of innocence in their rebirths. I don't know. But uh, but yeah. There was that. Uh, I'll close out with uh, one more to go, and I'm definitely looking forward to your thoughts on Powers of X or Powers of Ten. Maybe I'll finally start calling it what it's supposed to be. No, I probably won't. Powers of X number six. I'm looking forward to hearing your thoughts, and uh, hopefully uh, you'll you'll give us like a full rundown of your Hoxpox experience. Um, if I'm remembering right, and I'm pretty sure I am because I think I cited this a couple episodes ago, uh, I was a little bit underwhelmed by Powers of X number six. While I absolutely adored House of X number six, and kind of wish it'll ended here, but definitely looking forward to that, and uh, also looking forward to hearing from other folks out there, seeing what you guys think of what's going on then, now, or whenever in the X books. So if you'd like to get a hold of me, you could do so very easily. I'm at Ace Comics on Twitter or at WeirdComicsHistory at gmail.com. You can find all the show notes and stuff at Chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. The Xlapsed page is xlapsed.chris'sOnInfiniteEarths.com. You can find the Facebook group at 90s X-Men and the audio archives at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. So, I think that's where we'll put a pin in it today. Uh, Next time, we will be talking about Excalibur, which will hopefully be a better time than the last time we talked about Excalibur, but uh, no promises. (laughs) They're making me no promises, so in turn, I'm passing the savings on to you and making no promises myself. But, fingers crossed, we'll hope for the best. Now, for those listening in real time, the next episode of X-Lapsed is going to be something a little different. A little different, a little special. It's going to be a little spin-off that uh, 
we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. I hope people enjoy it or tolerate it. We'll see how it goes. <laughs> I'm definitely looking forward to hearing folks' thoughts on the episode that will come out on Sunday. So, with all that said, one more giant thank you to everyone for listening and writing in. It makes so much of this worthwhile. I can't even put into words what it means to me that uh, that there are folks listening and uh, taking time out of their day to uh, to interact and engage. It really, it really makes me feel good. So thank you all. Thank you all so much for sharing your time with me. But until next time, as always, I will talk to you again real soon. See ya. Oh